What's up, guys? Josh here from the Rising Action Podcast. Unfortunately, Grayson couldn't join us this week, and so in this episode, I will be joined by Seth Williams, one of my good friends and a writer, director, and cinematographer. We dive deep into our list of some of the most influential movies ever made and explore how certain films have influenced American culture and what we know about filmmaking. Also, Grayson will pop in briefly about halfway through the episode, where he will talk about some films that have changed the way movies are made. So enough for me, all of that and more is coming up soon, but now I'm going to shut up and get into it with Seth. Rising Action. Rising Action. Right, so should be good to go. I believe so. I just want my phone call. What do we actually know? Rising Action Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Rising Action Podcast. We have a new little setup today. We don't have Grayson, but we replaced him. We got somebody who can take his spot. Um, if you've been listening to the podcast before, you will recognize the mythic legend who is on the other side of the mic with me. His name is Seth Williams. He's a filmmaker. He's a writer. Um, we've collaborated on a whole bunch of projects in the past and I'm really excited for this episode because this episode we're going to be talking about some of the most impactful movies on cinema and also on culture in the history of movie making. So I'm really stoked. How you doing Seth? I'm doing great. I'm excited for this. And so, thanks for the uh, mythic intro. <laughs> of course <laughs> I gotta you know I gotta trump you up as the uh, the legend that you are. <laughs> I'm so, honored. Um, of these movies, we've kind of got a list of some movies that we're going to touch on and kind of explain. How many of these have you personally seen? Um, almost all of them. Uh, I think there were a few in there that I, you know, I, I recognize the name, but there were uh, there were a few that I was like, oh, no, I don't know if I can <laughs> stand so, up to the uh, name of a cinephile that I hope to uh, hope to be one day. You're doing better than me because I'll be honest, and um, you know this is typical par for the course on this podcast. I've seen about half of them, <laughs> and uh, the other ones I had to watch uh, video essays to kind of figure out what it is that's going on. In oh, these nice! Movies. Don't we all though? Don't we all? Yeah. So why don't we waste no time and just dive right into it? Um, the first movie we're gonna go kind of linearly here. Um, we're going to go all the way back, almost 100 years ago, and the first movie I kind of want to talk about is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Classic. It is a classic. Um, just a couple uh, notes here. It is the first full-length animated feature, which is interesting because before this, um, even non-animated features were not you know, this was not just like the first full-length animated feature. It was one of the first full-length features anyway. Um, it wasn't till probably like 15 years before that they were even doing features. Yeah. So uh, not very long into the uh, life of movies at this point. Right. I mean, this is like at the beginning. Um, and it also was the beginning of a timeless animation company in Walt Disney Pictures. Walt Disney Pictures. I, I don't know if they call it Walt Disney Pictures. Anyway, Disney. Who are you talking about? Disney? Who? Walt Disney? Who 
No, no idea. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a just a small little auteur that you know a, a small company. You know. Oh wait, yeah, I think I heard of that guy. He, uh, yeah. Did he? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm on track. Yeah. Yeah. They uh they made a couple movies. Not that many though. They kind of ran out of money. um so uh this movie did something interesting and uh it used it was the first use of a multi-plane camera which is why it's here Mm -hmm. um so why don't you give us like a a very basic like extremely dumbed down explanation of what multi-plane camera techniques are yeah so um a lot of animation movies used this you know up to like cg animation but multi-plane is basically just like you take a camera you take a couple pieces of glass or plexiglass or whatever and um a couple layers and kind of put that in front of the lens and layer those drawings on top of each other to kind of create this you know forced three-dimensional effect um it's really beautiful Um, i've seen it used um by a lot of other companies other than disney but disney definitely did it best and they did it first and that's what counts yep and that's a lot of um that's a common theme with a lot of these films is that um the reason why they're important is not necessarily because they're perhaps like the greatest film ever made it's usually because they were the first to utilize a technique um, that later became common practice and therefore they kind of changed how things are done. Now some of these movies um, that we'll get to a little bit later don't do that at all. They're just um, movies that technique wise were you know very par for the course but it was the either the message of the film or um, perhaps some of the thematic elements in the film that just kind of uh, maybe exploded in society and caused people to ask a lot of questions, or um, it the story itself was just something that would, went rabid in American <laughs> culture or even you know international culture and just kind of went absolutely crazy. But Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1937, first movie to use multiplane camera. Yeah, that's really cool. I don't know if you've seen like any of the, you know, old like behind the scenes footage of them using that stuff. I haven't, um, honestly. Like with all the like um, mechanics and how they like move the background and like with the camera and stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. That's um, pretty neat. But, but you're totally right about um, like some of these movies um, might not stand out to like the general population because they're kind of just here because they invented something, not because that. Not because they furthered cinema. They didn't just, you know, tell a compelling story. Um, right. You know, they invented a technique that would later go on to be used probably in, you know, bigger, better films. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a couple films on this list that are like that for sure. Yeah. Um, the next movie, just kind of moving right along here. Uh, the next movie that I feel like, and I think you'd probably agree with me, is one of the more influential movies on film is Gone with the Wind uh, oh, which yeah, was made totally. by Victor Fleming in 1939 okay so I haven't even I haven't seen this entire movie 
Um, I have seen like the first two hours and it's like a four hour (laughs) movie or something like that. (laughs) Let's just um, take a moment to realize the profoundness of that statement. Seth said, I've seen the first two hours as if like, that's just (laughs) scratching the surface. The first two hours is is not even enough. (laughs) It's not even, I wouldn't even call it that like, it's definitely not like a depth filled movie. It's not one of those movies where you're just like, at least for me, like I'm not totally entranced by it. Like obviously the filmmaking is really impressive, especially for like the time when it came out. Um, But it's not one of those stories where it's like, oh, I've got to keep watching this. It's kind of like, oh, you know, this is, it's all right. Filmmaking's good, but I've seen two hours. Sometimes I feel like I've seen enough. Yeah. So what everybody knows about this movie is that for the longest time, up until very recently, it was the highest grossing film of all time. Yeah. Um, And if you don't know, and I didn't until pretty recently, but um, Gone with the Wind was... Uh, it was made for $4 million in 1939, which is a massive budget for a film if you adjust, adjust that for inflation. But at the time, $4 million budget was e- enormous. Yeah, that's um, a lot. And you can tell, too, in the movie, like it feels like a really high production value film. Right. It was interesting because I think it was the movie was given such a green light because of the novel that, w- that it was adapting Um, because it was so popular in that time. Mm. And so I think that studio execs thought rightly so that the adaption of that or adaptation of that movie would be a smash hit. And it was. And at the time it made $400 million worldwide, which, okay, if you think about it, that's like everybody. (laughs) Right. Like interstellar. Yeah. I think interstellar made $400 million in that ballpark, maybe 400, 500 million in you know, recent memory from Christopher Nolan, who cannot make a bad movie. Oh, and no, he can't. You're right. In 1939, Gone with the Wind made $400 million, which, if you adjust that for inflation, is $1.6 billion. Dude, that is insane. And I think... That's just crazy. I think that record held until Infinity War. It might have been the first Avengers in 2012. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I know that Titanic held the highest grossing film of all time for a while. I don't know if that was it like did. adjusted correctly for inflation or not, but that might have been the uh, the one that broke the record next. And that's a long ways away, too. Like, we're talking, when did Name of the Wind come out? Or, song, or um, Gone with the Wind? Gone with the Wind, Gone with sorry. Gone with the Wind was 1939, so that was like 50 years before, or 55 Dude, that, years before Titanic came out. Yeah. That's crazy. It's insane. And, you know, the one of the interesting things they did was uh, they marketed this film for three years before it came out. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because I think this movie is kind of like a, a landmark just because it's, it's almost like in its own league. Um, yeah. Movies are not marketed for three years. Uh, movies are marketed for like nine months tops at least yeah for sure nowadays more often than not it's like six months yeah and um and it was also made in a different time uh nowadays uh, studios want to be churning out movies on a regular basis they want to have a uh, a deep lineup and i think gone with the wind 
it was made by uh, MGM, and yeah. they really went full out for this movie. Um, I don't. It's it's very interesting because you can just kind of see filmmaking at a completely different time with a completely different culture and a different mindset for how movies are going to be made. I think the first cut for this film was six hours long. Like you could not pay people to watch a six hour movie nowadays. Like it just would not. Oh, happen. you could. It's it's called a TV miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. You you got me there. I've seen a couple of those. <laughs> I've been glued. <laughs> Dude, I don't know if you've seen some of the like shots from that film, but the way they use matte paintings um, and kind of like they did with Snow White, um, like using glass in front of the in front of the rest of the frame to kind of extend the image. Yeah. So there's like there's like scenes in like, a, you know, a, a hayfield or whatever. And there's people like plowing in the in the foreground and then the background is extended with a matte painting. And it's yeah. seamless, and it's just gorgeous. Um, some like it's impossible to tell too, unless you're like really looking for it. But it's, so it's quite like, an achievement. It's like Stone Age CGI set extension. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's what it is. That's crazy. How do they match up a shot perfectly with a painting to where it looks like an extension? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they did that without like you know blending uh, with CGI because right. I know they did some of that with like in the recent Star Wars movies, like they had, you know, a, a model up close to the camera and then a shot yep. of the landscape and then they blended it together with CG, um, which is super cool. Um, but I honestly, I don't know how they did the, the force perspective thing so seamlessly back then. It could have just been like the film stock isn't high enough res to like pick up the, you right, know, where the themes the are. Um, but either that or they've got some really good artists like sitting behind no the scenes. Kidding. Just like, yeah. Um, yeah, that's cool. That's absurd. Um, the next film, I, I put this one on here. Um, full transparency, Seth sort of objected to it. <laughs> I'm going to throw you under the bus. <laughs> uh, but the next movie here is, um, Stagecoach. And, um, <laughs> your exact quote when I said, we should talk about this one was, I don't know anything about this movie other than John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> that is the extent of my knowledge on Stagecoach. <laughs> I um, uh, like. I have seen very few John Wayne movies or even clips. Um, like, I I know like the mark he has had on cinema is and John Ford for that matter. Um, right. The two Johns, but uh, yeah. That, I know their their footprint is large, um, but I just I haven't gotten around to watching a lot of their films. Um, maybe I should. So, the reason why this one is there um, is kind of for what came after. Um, I think spaghetti westerns. We we kind of know them. Like okay, the the dollars trilogy where you mm -hmm. have the good, the bad, the ugly. That movie does not happen if Stagecoach does not happen. Yep. Uh, Stagecoach was like, uh, it, was, it was the first Western ever made that was like a serious movie that wasn't some just like goofy, campy, like poor spaghetti Western. Mm -hmm. And it does not mean that Stagecoach is, a, is like without flaw. Um, it's got some issues. It is 
a spaghetti western but it's like a serious spaghetti western and audiences connected with it they took it seriously and you're right i mean it launched the careers of john ford and john wayne the two johns and obviously we know john wayne is like legendary western and you know uh, a war film actor but it was kind of the launching of the western genre and for anybody listening you will know by now it will have been pounded into your head that here at rising action we love our westerns and so <laughs> stagecoach is here because it saved westerns and Josh, so what's, uh, your, what's your uh what's your favorite western oh my gosh um I really like okay uh, there that's a that's a very wide ranging question yep. in terms of like true blue spaghetti westerns the good the bad the ugly and the cowboys are probably my two favorite spaghetti westerns and then in terms of like movies that are westerns but aren't like strictly westerns um I really love uh, Hell or High Water and um, oh, that's No Country for Old Men. Mm. Yeah, I feel like both of those are, they're like modern westerns. Um, yeah, I love those movies. Yeah. One of my favorites is uh, Slow West with oh, Fassbender yes. and, uh, 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 what's the other, what's the kid's name? Cody Smith McPhee. Cody McPhee, yeah. Um, I love that movie so much. It's just gorgeous. It's so good. Yeah. I, I've watched that movie probably four times, mostly because it's like an hour and 20 minutes long and I can just kind of sit down if I have nothing to do and just kind of yeah, crank really through short. it and move on yeah. with my day. It's yeah. fantastic. Um, but it's so meditative and it kind of like, I mean, it truly is all the things that a spaghetti Western is, but just more depth. Uh, yeah. Like a spaghetti Western is a movie with the depth of a puddle and slow west is that <laughs> but with the depth of a you know six foot deep pool yeah and even on top of that it's shot in australia i think yeah in new uh, zealand yeah so again like those spaghetti westerns that were shot in like italy or uh europe or australia it's pretty similar there's a lot of similarities and i, yeah. I think it's like the modern attempt to humanize the spaghetti western yeah it's kind of like a, a modern attempt to like deconstruct the genre um right because it, it is kind of a dead genre at this point like westerns don't get made that often anymore except except for like you know modern like superhero takes on them like logan or something like that um, right. which i i like a lot um but slow west kind of like deconstructs all of the you know um um the archetypal story beats of a Western of a spaghetti Western. So that's why right. I love it. Yeah. It's good stuff. The next movie on here is one we were talking about before the podcast. It might be the most recognizable film on this list. And that is citizen Kane. Oh yeah. Watched it last night for the first time. So if you could compare, and I know this is extremely difficult, but mm -hmm. uh, compare the filmmaking in Citizen Kane to modern filmmaking techniques. You know what? It was actually surprisingly contemporary. Like, 
you know, old movies look and sound a certain way, you yeah. know, like they're really like loud and some sometimes kind of obnoxious and the cameras are all like locked down and, and everything like that. Citizen Kane felt really artistic. Like it, it almost felt like something that A24 would produce nowadays. Yeah. Like it, it really did feel that way. And I think it, I think it was because like there were so many cinematic breakthroughs in that movie as far as the way people shot film back then. Um, right. You know, uh, things like y- you can see the ceilings, like there's all these different like weird low angle shots um, because back in those days they would take out the ceilings of the set and put lights in so that they could, you know, evenly light the actors. Um, this Citizen Kane felt really moody, like it was going for something that was like more atmospheric than most films of that time. Yeah. Um, and same thing with the editing, man. Like the editing was like kind of oddly, you know, of course it has some of those like old movie um, weird like dissolves and things like that. Right. Um, but like there was like shaky cam. There was, um, I don't know, like they did, they did some like non-linear editing techniques yeah. and things like that. Um, yep. It was really, it was impressive. Like, I didn't think the story was the most like revolutionary or groundbreaking thing. It was more so like the way they told it. And I think I, I, I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah. So from what I've, I haven't seen the movie all the way through, but from what I know about it, it was the first film that really broke away from the stage play in terms of telling a story. Like it was very much a whole different medium and before a lot of films like characters would talk to each other and they would wait till the other character finished their ex their dialogue and then the next person would say their dialogue and so on and so forth back and forth until you got to the whole story and like you said like it would be locked down they would have like okay i watched uh i don't remember what movie it was a movie made in like 1950 the other day I honest mm-hmm. to goodness cannot remember the name of it, but <laughs> I remember watching, I watched a scene and I kind of was like thinking about the structure of the scene. And essentially what happened was a dude walked into a building and you had a, a lockdown establishing shot of the door. And then they panned over and he walked to a desk and he was talking to a dude behind this desk. And then they cut from that establishing shot to a closer shot, which was basically the establishing shot, but zoomed in. And then they got the reaction shot of the other dude, but it was not over the shoulder. It was just like a, a flat, um, like he was just center frame. There was no use of thirds or anything like that. And then they yeah. just did this cut back and forth where dude would say all his dialogue. There was no reaction shots. He would say his dialogue, it would go back to the other dude, and it would just be so on and so forth. And then they would cut back to your establishing shot, and he would leave the room, and that was the end of the scene. And I was like, oh my God, it's so boring. And <laughs> yeah. so something that they did with Citizen Kane was they completely scrapped that whole concept of movie making. And to, to its credit, that style of filmmaking is extremely quick. You can bang out a movie in like a week as long as your actors know their lines. But the yeah. problem is... Like I said, it's boring. It, there's just nothing to it that's interesting. And with Citizen Kane, you had characters. It, it, like, it really valued the reaction because um, you have characters saying things 
over each other and through each other, not just like back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. There was like a flow to the dialogue, to the scene. Um, and it, it wasn't just like it, 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 it wasn't ping pong. There was a, yeah. there was an ebb and flow to it. It felt like a wave crashing on a beach rather than just like a, a linear back and forth kind of movement and the camera work as well. It was not just the establishing shot to the A shot, the B shot, the A shot, the B shot, establishing shot. And there was much more thought put into the cinematography. The sound mixing was very different from any movie before or, you know, for 10, 15 years afterward. Um, it's, it's interesting that a movie can be that much of a unicorn. Um, and even now, as you know, we can watch it and say, like, I mean, we can certainly uh, pull out things about it and be like, well, that's kind of goofy looking or, you know, like this establishing yeah. shot looks really cheesy or, or maybe this line of dialogue isn't that great. But if you kind of put the whole piece together, it's truly like a one of a kind never to be duplicated kind of film. Totally. Yeah. And I get what you're saying about like, you know, not analyzing something for like the value that it has now. Like back then it was super important. Like one of the most important movies ever made. Um, And it's important to analyze it from that. But honestly, like I didn't feel like I had to because the movie felt so modern. Like it really did. Like the performances are really deep and nuanced um it kind of feels like uh orson wells like let the actors breathe you know like mm-hmm. there were there were scenes where it, you know it's like longer takes where he lingers on them mm-hmm. and and a lot more emotion you're right like it doesn't feel as stilted like it doesn't feel as you know rehearsed um it, it definitely felt more like you know a, a modern movie um and one thing I one thing I noticed that um, I think is pretty impactful to like some of the the great cinematographers and filmmakers today is the the use of lighting. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's these big rooms with like these shafts of light coming down, and there's you know the room is filled with like a, a haze, so the light like pierces that like uh, really contrasty. And I just see like that influencing Roger Deakins work, who is like one of the best cinematographers working today, like almost a direct influence. You can be, you can look at some of Roger's work and be like, Oh, I bet he watched Citizen Kane. (laughs) Right. Um, so yeah, seeing that like immediately is, was, was a really cool experience. Doesn't always happen. Yeah. One thing, and this is like a quick little aside, but uh, one thing that Roger Deakins does when he lights his subjects is he does this technique called the cove, um, yeah. where he he'll uh, put up like two diffusions, and then he'll put um, he'll have like a a practical or a light in the in the corner of the frame, and then he'll put a camera pointed directly at each of the diffusions, and they're angled to where you have like uh, lighting fall off across a person's face very evenly. Yeah. And I, I truly think you can see the genesis of that concept in Citizen Kane, um, mm-hmm. the way Orson Welles lights his subjects. It's not that fully fleshed out technique yet, but yeah. like the bones of it are there. Um, I, you could see him lighting his subjects with more than one light, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting because before I, I really 
and I don't know this to be fact, but I really think you were lighting everything with practicals. And Orson Welles was like, no, 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 no. We're going to really um, just like pioneer whole new techniques for how to light a subject, how to shoot a subject. And you're right. Like you can definitely see um, those concepts being used by um, cinematographers today, which is really, really cool because this movie was made in 1941. Yeah. Um, so well, to go is, off of that, I think that, um, like, you're right. I think movies before Citizen Kane were all very flat in the way they, yeah. were, they were lit. Um, Citizen Kane is a super contrasty movie. Like, there's a lot of shadow. There's a lot of bright highlights. Um, and, and you can tell they're not just using that, like, you know, ceiling, like, practical. You know, they're, just, they're literally, um, you know, creating these ambient rooms with the way they light their scene and that that was something totally new and i honestly i that probably inspired and i don't know this for a fact but i think that inspired a lot of the noir genre how those Mm -hmm. movies were made um because you you can just tell like those movies took so much inspiration from citizen kane just in the in the way they shoot um and film their actors and even locations and sets and things like that right yeah citizen kane is a uh I need to just fork out the money and just buy it. It's a movie Dude, I need you to can, have. You can totally uh, borrow my copy. Oh, sweet. Um, I've, I'm building up my old film collection. I've got a couple uh, Kurosawa films. I've got an Alfred Hitchcock collection of like 15 of his films. I need, nice. to, uh, I need to buy Citizen Kane. Yeah, man. I'd say it's definitely worth it. If you could get it for, you know, 10 bucks, which you probably can. Um, yeah. Or if you want to fork out 50 bucks for the Criterion Collection edition. <laughs> That's right. Support a good cause. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about it, but you're right. 50 bucks might be a little bit much, but you know. Yeah, that's pretty steep. We'll see what I end up doing. You'll the, probably uh, get some like archival footage of Orson Welles like sitting on the toilet or something. <laughs> I wonder, do they, have direct, do they have director's commentary and all those? They do, uh, they do a moves? lot of behind the scenes stuff. That's kind of what Criterion Collection is known for. They like do really okay. nice copies, but then they also like do a lot of behind the scenes, like director's commentaries, things like that. Yeah. I love that. The, uh, the next movie on here is one that I'm going to let you kind of run with. That movie is Ben-Hur. Oh, dude. Ben-Hur is a wild ride, let me tell you. Have you seen, (laughs) have you watched Ben-Hur all the way through? I've seen the original one and the new one. Yeah, so the Ben-Hur, well, the the original Ben-Hur with uh, Charlton Heston actually was the second one. There was one made in the 20s. Really? Yeah. Um, And and, uh, the the 59, I think, Ben-Hur is kind of the one that went down in history because... Um, they use a lot of cinematic techniques that hadn't really been implemented in the way that they were in Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur is such a massive movie. Yeah. Like, it's one of those you look at and you're like, oh my, did they actually do that? Yeah. <laughs> and for a lot of it, yeah, they did because it's, you know, late 50s. What else are you going to do? Right. Um, like like those the chariot scenes, racing. Right. I was about to say the chariot racing scenes, they had to put extras in every one of those seats to fill out the stadium and they had to have people driving those chariots. I remember watching it thinking like, I mean, like you said, how in the world did they make this happen? 
Yeah. Well, did you know that Charleston, Charlton Heston's stuntman almost died filming that? What? No. Yeah. He like, so he like goes over a bump in the movie and it's in the movie. This shot is, um, and he like flies over the front of the chariot and like catches himself. Like, I don't know if you remember the scene from the movie, but he like catches himself right before he goes like right under the horses and right under the chariot. Oh my God. And like that actually happened. It was like totally on accident. And the guy almost died. And he's, you know, he made it into the movie because it was such a freaking crazy shot. Holy but, crap. Yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So Ben Hur was. I don't know. It, it it wasn't the first movie to use CinemaScope because that was The Robe. Um, yeah. And you and so I explain, talked about that, including that one. Yeah. Explain CinemaScope for those who don't know what that is. So it's basically just a really wide um, format film. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of movies before CinemaScope were shot in, you know, 4.3, 1 to 1. Um, you know, you're kind of like basic um formats for film and cinemascope was just like this attempt to widen the perspective like your field of view basically mm -hmm. um and people dug it like people went to the cinemas like crazy to see cinemascope um yeah and it was just this really high resolution film that you know could render just really gorgeous landscapes and images and things like that but like yeah. big movies and it's kind of become the archetypal um aspect ratio for you know, big blockbuster move action movies to use because it feels epic. And yeah. I think Ben-Hur is one of the reasons that is. It's just Ben-Hur is just like this crazy big movie. So like, why wouldn't you try to replicate that with even your aspect ratio? Right. And it definitely lends itself to working with that film because it, I mean, it is a massive movie, not mm -hmm. just like for 1959, like it's a massive movie regardless of the era that it's made <laughs> That's in. That's so true, yeah, yeah. Like, they have great... They have such big sets for that movie, and they've got so many extras. Like, nowadays, with a... Let's take the, the, the Coliseum, for example. Yeah. If, if they were to make that now, they could do it with, like, 40 people because they yep. could make the actual like sand of the Coliseum, the bottom part. And then they would put up green screens all around for all the stands and everybody watching it. Yep. And so, you know, then what they had to do was they had to have the actual Coliseum. They had to build the set and then they had to fill it with however many hundreds or maybe even thousands of people, spectators. They couldn't just splice them in. Uh, they couldn't just add extra people in a computer and then they had to like film this whole thing they had to have people cheering the whole time whereas now they could film it over you know a long period of time and they could do it no matter the circumstances they would be shooting that in a warehouse somewhere where yeah. they would have built the set and then they would light it how they want and then they would just have green screens everywhere it would literally look like a sand pit and then just a field of green <laughs> yep or blue or whatever um, yeah, whatever, so they, whatever they do nowadays. Right. It's crazy. It'd probably, be, that a, it'd probably be a projector screen wrapping around now. Probably. That's probably. <laughs> the way the Mandalorian has changed everything, they're like, yeah. okay, um, what we're going to do is we're going to program projectors because green screens are now old hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> but it's crazy that they could accomplish. I mean, I know 
uh, if you have enough money, I mean, you can do anything. And Ben-Hur yeah. had a lot of money pumped into it. But still, for the time and in general, it's a massive movie. And it's also like three and a half, four hours long. Like, it is interminable. It seems like it's never going to end. Um, yep. It's just, it's so larger than life, big, massive. Like, it's a crazy movie. It's also really gory. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's gross. G or something. And yeah. I remember watching it with my family because I was like, you guys haven't seen Ben-Hur? You're missing out. And, you know, my little brother's like 10 or something. And he's right. like, Seth, why are you making me watch this? It's so <laughs> violent. Like, sorry, man. I didn't, I didn't remember it was this gruesome. Yeah. I remember <laughs> like guys wandering around with ar- their arms cut off and stuff. Right. I remember <laughs> my little sister used to do a like a, a fine arts camp thing. And um, she was probably eight, nine, ten, something like that. And one day they watched Ben-Hur. And I remember, I'm always going to remember this. I remember my mom was so pissed that they were watching <laughs> Ben-Hur because she apparently knew what I had did not, that Ben-Hur was not good for a 10-year-old. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember she drove all the way there. She chewed out the lady that was there. She's like, why are you letting my kid watch Ben-Hur? Oh and goodness. I'm sitting here like, and I will always remember that as, for the longest time, I was like, Ben-Hur is gross. Nobody can watch that. And then, you know, I grew up, I watched it, and I was like, this movie's crazy. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, mom would not let my sister watch Ben-Hur. Um, Ben-Hur is also one of three movies that are tied for um, the most Oscar nominations ever, or most Oscar wins ever. Uh, and that's 11 it, wins. 11, it, yeah. It, it's tied with... Uh, Lord of the Rings Return of the King and Titanic. That's crazy. Yeah. That's wild. I remember um, when I was doing research for this that uh, I think it was Stagecoach had like eight or something. And Citizen Kane, I think, also had eight. Yeah. And at the time, I think that was the max you could win. I don't even think they had the extra three categories. <laughs> they probably didn't. <laughs> so to win 11 like um, I'm trying to think of a movie that's won more than 5 even recently um, um, I remember Mad Max Fury Road won like 6 I think I think so and yeah. I want to say like Braveheart won 6 it might even won more it might have won something like 8 um, No oh, Country I'm for sure, Old Men yeah. won 5 yeah, eleven does not happen often. No, no. In fact, it's rarely happened ever. It's only happened three times. Yep, yet to be broken too. I'm I'm excited to see the film that breaks that. It's gonna be a good one. It would have to be for a film to break that record. It would have to be a movie with the production value of a Marvel film, because it would also have to stretch into the other categories that are not just like indicative of a great film. Um, yeah, like production best costume. Design, yeah, yeah, production design and costuming do not like Black Panther won it a couple of years ago, and I don't think anybody in their right mind would think that Black Panther was even close to the best movie that year. No, but it had really good costumes. It did. <laughs> <laughs> it had great costumes. And, it had great production design. Yeah, and really good music, dude. It Ludwig did. Gordonson. Holy crap! Oh, dude, he is he is a talented man right there. He's 
he is like the second coming of Hans Zimmer. I mean, he is. Oh, totally. He's incredible. He's doing uh, uh, Tenet, I think. Really? Oh, dude, I think that's I, awesome. I think Grayson told me on the podcast that Ludwig Göransson is doing Tenet. Oh, dude. That's, uh, that's exciting. Yeah. So the, uh, the next film on here, and this one, I love this movie, is 1960. We have Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. All right. All right, so this is this is one of those movies that I actually have not seen the whole movie. Really? Yeah. Um, I've seen enough of it probably to say that, you know... Well, I, I, guess, I guess I shouldn't say that, that I've seen enough of something to have seen it, because um, that's not true. But uh, I've seen all of the really notable scenes from that movie. Right. Yeah, it's just it, one of those um, I never got around to watching. Yeah, it's... This one is interesting because, I mean, one, it's a Hitchcock movie, and I don't think many people... And also, to even... You know, I don't know that this is Hitchcock's best movie. I would argue that maybe Rear Window is his best movie. But Yeah, I think a lot of people would say that. Or Vertigo. People like Vertigo, too. Vertigo is incredible. But Psycho did something that none of his other films did, and that captured culture's... Uh, it just kind of like everybody saw it. Everybody watched Psycho, and it was a phenomenon. And, oh, yeah. you know, more than that, it was a movie that kind of like maybe the first movie that truly blended like, I mean, it was a cult movie, a mainstream smash, and a filmmaker's dream of a movie. And not many movies had done that before. Like, sure, you had you know, a movie that would fit into one of those categories, like Ben-Hur was a, a mainstream smash, but it wasn't necessarily a cult movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like um, The Robe was a cult movie, but it wasn't necessarily a mainstream smash. And so Psycho was all of those things. And to top it all off, it was Alfred Hitchcock. And Hitchcock is like, I would equate him to as an auteur like a Christopher Nolan in that yeah. he always made good movies um, and he had like a flair about him where he knew uh, what he was making was good and he wanted yeah. people to see it and he kind of like created a culture around going to the movies which is something that I think Christopher Nolan also pushes for as well um, but also like Hitchcock is his own like, Hitchcock is on the poster for Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> like, think about how crazy that is. The director is... He was a brand is, of his own. Right. He was a brand of his own. And in 1960, I mean, you had... There was great filmmakers. Like, you had William Wyler. Um, you had Hitchcock. You had... Um, I'm forgetting a bunch of the other ones. But there was a lot of great filmmakers. But none of them were Hitchcock. And yeah. He, he was a brand to his own. You could say Hitchcock, and everybody knows who you're talking about. Exactly, yeah. He, he's one of the founders of film language. Like, yeah. he's, he's, he's one of those guys that, you know, he, he laid the, the ground rules, you know? Like, y- you watch early interviews with him, like, explaining how cinematic editing works, you know? Right. He's like, well, if you show this shot against this shot it means this thing but if you switch it it means something else and people are like what 
right. this is amazing. And yep. like now we're like, oh yeah, like obviously that makes sense. But it's because we we've watched so many movies. Um, Hitchcock, man, he he was a um, Psycho's one of those movies where there were there was a lot of ground broken, um, right? Especially in the like violence and nudity category. Mm-hmm. Psycho is one of the first movies to have like substantial nudity in it. Um, yeah. In that time, like, y- you know, you just couldn't. And, and he had a hard time, I think, getting it past a lot of, you know, people Censors. that are in charge of that stuff. Yeah. Because they wanted the censor like crazy. Um, yep. Uh, and like the fact that it made it through, I think, is really cool. Um, and definitely like set other filmmakers up to like explore. You know, as as terrifying as Psycho is, and the and those scenes of like you know violence and things like that, um, it definitely opened up a lot of doors for you know filmmakers to explore new ground. So that's a pretty cool thing about it. Right. What's crazy is that violence kind of like <sighs> violence is such a big part of that film, and it's only present for two minutes of screen time. Yeah, because it like the scenes were so lasting and it was only in two scenes as well. But those scenes and, you know, all of us that know about movies, think of the shower scene um, with it's like violins and like the knife and, you know, she's the scream and all that stuff. Like everybody thinks about that. Yeah. And and that is truly iconic. But the fact that he could make a movie where violence is such a small part, but also a major part of it is really a testament to, like you said, his knowledge of cinematic language, um, that he could make those scenes last, um, that they weren't just kind of like arbitrary scenes that you kind of watched and got over. Like you watched it and you're like, Whoa, like, you know, everybody can think I can think for me, um, the Revenant bear attack scene or like the annihilation uh, bear scene those oh, scenes those it scenes sounds like you're really scared of bears <laughs> right, yeah but man they're freaking terrifying <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um like those scenes are i mean yes they are violent and they're like jaw-droppingly just insane but yeah. it's not just that they're violent it's that they last and you think yeah. about them afterward and that's what happened with psycho now if we were to watch them now i mean those violent scenes would not last because i mean they weren't like the shower scene is not gross at all. Like I don't even think you see the knife like stabbing her. You just yeah, know compared to the now, use of editing. Yeah, you know through the use of editing what is happening. Yeah. But um yeah, he did um he I don't know, man. It's it's a weird movie because it is truly creepy. It's kind of like almost like 1960 version of The Shining sort of. Um, yeah. Like, it's just really kind of eerie, and it's violent, but it's not violent. And and I don't know. Like, it was just this weird kind of, like, groundbreaking kind of, I don't know. Again, it was it was a one-of-a-kind movie, and I think it's very interesting that Psycho can be considered one of the landmark films in cinema history and it not even be Hitchcock's best movie. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I think um, Psycho was the first film to show a toilet in the movie you know that <laughs> i i, I heard that, that? Like, random fact one day i don't know if it's true at all but I, that just stuck in my mind like and i can just picture the shot like the flushing toilet you know 
that I I did not think that was something I was gonna know by the time this podcast ended. Yeah, here's Seth over here, not even having seen the whole movie of Psycho, and he just knows that one little factoid about the <laughs> toilet. That, it's so that characteristic, random. right? That's that's good stuff, man. <laughs> the um, the next movie on this list introduces a director that I personally love. Um, it's Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm. Uh, have you seen this movie? Yes. Um, I've only seen it once all the way through. I need to watch it again because I really love it. Um, I, I always go back and watch, you know, individual scenes because this is one of those movies that like really haunts me. Right. Like it really sticks with you. Um, and I, I, I think it's, it has to do with the pace. Like this is, this movie was not well received when it first was released. Um, You know, it was, no one really got it. Heck, I I still don't really get it. Yeah. Um, I mean, Kubrick kind of has a, a, (sighs) Kubrick does that a lot. He makes movies that general audiences don't quite get. Uh, Yeah. And, I mean, Space Odyssey is kind of that. Um, it's it's kind of like, okay, a lot of movies that we see now are kind of like visionary sci-fi movies. Um, yep. Like, I just watched Ad Astra the other day. Oh, dude, that's such and, a beautiful film. Right. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it's a genre that I think, if you pay attention, you will realize modern sci-fi films are pretty much all gorgeous movies. Um, you yeah. can think of like Interstellar, Blade Runner 2049, Ad Astra, like they've all got, um, they kind of like take advantage of the uh, the landscape that they're they're shooting and they it allows you to be imaginative with what you're seeing because there's no assumed normal. Um, you can kind of yeah. put anything in there and space odyssey does that cause it's almost like a psychedelic trip at, at times yeah. with the visuals in this movie. And it was interesting that it came in the sixties cause you know, you like got like hippies and you got, um, kind of like in yeah, the culture that it came out, it was yeah. a movie that it's visuals sort of represented the time in America's history that it kind of was released during and, and on top of all of it, it's got Kubrick's kind of like touch where it's just like this weird, like, like I mean, it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, and it's kind of drippy and it's kind of out there. But um, it was like sci-fi that you could sort of take seriously, even though it you didn't really fully understand it. Yeah. Um, it introduced some ideas that were a little bit far-fetched. And yeah. it almost doesn't even matter, like what the film means, you know? It's one of those movies, it's more about like how it makes you feel than it is about how, like, because there's so many different interpretations, right? Right. Um, like about, like with the monolith and, th- and things like that. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those movies that you really feel. And I think that's reflective of, you know, the time that it came out. Um, the kind of like, um, like, like you said, psychedelic nature of, you know, the filmmaking. Um, yeah. I think this is one of those movies, and I'm not entirely sure about this, but K- 
Kubrick had a knack for um, really prolonged film shoots. Um, mm. And I think this was one of those movies that almost didn't get finished because he just Kubrick was such a, <laughs> he's su- he was such a crazy guy on set. Like there's all those stories about um, him like tormenting actors like during yeah. The Shining and like all, and all that stuff and him getting in fights with producers yep. and things. He was just totally like a drama queen. And I love that because like his 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 vision is like almost like t- completely absolute, you know, yep. like you can just tell like the guy had total control over everything that was happening during that film. Yep. Um, and I think 2001 is is one of those miracle films that like just barely got made. Um, yeah. I think he even switched cinematographers like halfway through or something like that, because I think the beginning of the movie is shot, you know, the, all the stuff, you know, in the like landscapes with like the monkeys and things like yeah. that, that's all shot by one guy. And then like all the space stuff is shot by another person because I think they got in a, he got in a fight with the cinematographer and, and the cinematographer just like booked it. He was like, you know what? I'm out of this. This project is crazy. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Now, yeah. like, if you switch a cinematographer nowadays, that's a death sentence for a movie. Oh, true. It's yeah, like switching totally. a director. Like, you can't... Yeah. Like, Suicide Squad, they switch directors halfway through it. Or uh, Fantastic Four, they switch directors. And yep. you can tell where one director's vision leaves off and the next one starts, and it's disjointed and terrible. Yeah. Honestly, the only movie that I've seen recently that was like that was Sol- Solo. That movie actually yeah. turned out pretty good. Like... It's definitely not like the best Star Wars movie or close to the best Star Wars movie made, but like for all the like production troubles that movie had, it actually turned out pretty great. Yeah, it it did. And it was, I mean, it's interesting you talk about Kubrick being like a total drama queen. Um, Cause for, if you're listening to this and you've never like tried to make a film before, um Seth is laughing because he he knows <laughs> we've uh we've made some films we've made some films that did not get made um yep. and the process of making a film is so collaborative it's truly not reliant on one person to just kind of like drive the train to force it to get made and for a film to be made with such a domineering dictator kind of uh you know, director, I, I would not want to work for him. I mean, maybe I would cause it's Kubrick, but like you wouldn't want to work for somebody <laughs> like hindsight, that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, you wouldn't want to work for somebody like that. So it, it is impressive that it got made. Um, but also like, I mean, there are directors that have an absolute vision and that is what it is. Like you think of a Tarantino or a Hitchcock or a, a Nolan. I mean, they have an absolute this is what it is like you're gonna read the well maybe not Nolan as much but like you're gonna read the lines I wrote like this is what it's gonna be and um along with the uh that uh uh, ethos of those uh people there are a lot of times like contentious um interviews uh people will call them out and and things like that because it just kind of like has that associated with it because it will rub people the wrong way. I think a lot of people in filmmaking want to have an enjoyable experience while they're also making the movie. And when you have a domineering director, that's not always going to happen. Totally. Yeah. You're so right about 
film being like a collaborative effort because you know you can try and lift all the weights yourself as a director um and eventually the stress just kills you like and like a lot of like kubrick even he i think he had a lot of issues with like anxiety and stress and things like that and that was one of the reasons he was the way he was on set um but you know uh it's definitely a great feeling when you can show up you know to a shoot like with some of the shorts we've done like we've had really good teams of people where we just have a lot of fun and we can um you know kind of ad lib stuff and like come up with stuff on the fly and it turns out to be great yeah and sometimes you're like like people can't handle it and um they can't handle like that creative space as well right. and, and so you kind of have to like crack down a little bit but yeah. like for me i feel bad <laughs> doing that uh, <laughs> yeah i know um, and then i get my i get myself in a little bit of trouble because i'm like guys come on like we, we gotta start working on this um right but yeah you're right yeah like one of the greatest um being a director is not just being a director you're also a a food specialist you're a psychologist you're a um like a a a financier you're a i mean you are everything to the project that you're working on and um it's very interesting when you kind of see the personality of a certain director come out in their work and Mm. to read about like how that personality expressed itself it's i mean it's fascinating i mean 2001 a space odyssey is um maybe it's not like one of the most landmark movies ever made it introduced some techniques that were um substantial diversions from the norm Mm -hmm. but the fact that it was kubrick and like the mythos surrounding kubrick and just kind of like the fact that even got made um all those things together and it just kind of became a cult classic like all those things together make it just a really interesting movie in the history of movies yeah totally one of the things that i think the one of the coolest things i think about 2001 and how they made it is the the ship that spins Mm -hmm. um when they filmed that they actually made a rotating set so like really he would actually go on there and he'd run you know on the on the wall or whatever it's like a hamster wheel yeah and then the camera would like you know glide behind on a um uh, it, it probably wasn't a dolly track. It was, it was probably like maybe a, a stabilized. Yeah, uh, I'm almost thinking like, like that. in Inception, um, that hallway scene where this it's like rotating oh, like this weird dude. zero gravity thing, and they built yeah. a rig for it, and they put the camera in there. Yep, yep. I can almost yeah. I would equate them. I mean, they're different, but you know, it's, it's like pretty that. much the same technique. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's wild. Um, the next movie on here, and I think this might be a little bit of a surprise, not because of this film, but because of what's being omitted because this film is on here. Um, mm-hmm. The next film is The Godfather Part 2. Not the first one. Mm. Dude, I actually like Part 2 better than uh, the original. Yeah, and that is... That's interesting, because the first one is universally acclaimed as one of the maybe 10 greatest movies ever made. So and the yet, second. right. So if you were to go look at IMDb's list of the top 100 films ever made, 
Godfather one and two are both in the top five. Yep. Um, which is absurd. Yes, uh, it is. To to do so, I think the saying goes that lightning strikes once; it rarely strikes twice. With the Godfather movies, it struck twice, in yep. that they made, um, they told the first story, they told the initial Godfather movie, and then they made the second one, and it was better. And the original movie is still one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's Francis Ford Coppola. He's one of the most like legendary directors ever. Um, in fact, I was watching a documentary about him the other day and it was not about like this, the Godfather necessarily, but it was about him and a group of five other filmmakers that went to, um, Europe and made propaganda films during World War II. Yeah. What's that? Um, is it called like five came back or something like that? Yes. Yes. It's like a series and, um, Coppola was one of them and it was really interesting because, um, the directors that went over there were legendary. Um, you know, I think it was William Wyler, Ford Coppola, and then there was three others and I can't remember their names. Um, (laughs) so I guess maybe they weren't that legendary, but, (laughs) um, they all went there and they made propaganda films for the war effort, which is just like, imagine going to Iraq, like Christopher Nolan goes to Iraq and makes a movie for the U S government. That would be what it would be like. Yeah. Like crazy. Anyway, um, Godfather part two is on here because it might be one of the best or maybe the best sequel ever made. Um, and that alone is worth mentioning. There's another movie on here that is also a great sequel, but, um, it has, uh, like two storylines in it where they're like running parallel to one another. Yeah. Um, which is really, really interesting. And I mean, we've seen some examples in the past before this of nonlinear storytelling with like Citizen Kane or um, even unreliable narrator with your your main character. Yeah. Um, and you have a little bit of that here as well, but it kind of like brings the whole thing together. And it's also part of like the first initial genesis of the gangster genre. Um, yep. And, um, and it, it, this movie, these movies hugely influenced Martin Scorsese Mm -hmm. and a lot of his films are very um they they pay a lot of homage to the Godfather movies in fact he uses a lot of the same actors he uses Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in a lot of his movies um it kicked off a lot of careers I mean this movie made a lot of people a lot of money yeah it seriously did um have you even seen the third Godfather movie no I haven't either. <laughs> I don't think so. It's like anybody. It's has. like how do they follow up the two, the two best movies ever made? How do they follow that up? Um, they tried. They tried, and <laughs> but I still haven't it, watched it. <laughs> was it uh, the same group of people that made it, like Francis Ford Coppola, yeah. Al Pacino, and Robert De Niro? Yeah, and I think one of the reasons I haven't watched it yet is because it's kind of got a little bit of a bad reputation, and honestly, like. Um, the second one, like part two feels like the end to me, you know? Yeah. Like when he closes, when the door closes, you know, and she's like standing outside. Oh, so great. Um, it's such a good moment. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I um, I remember first time watching that movie and just like kind of gawking at how like masterfully made it is. Um, and the original is too, but part two feels a little bit more like prestigious to me. Like it, yeah. it really feels like they put like a lot of time and money into it. Um, and really like, I know it's a book, like, so they had source material to work from. And that but, um, always helps. That always, yeah. always helps. Especially with epics like this, you know, when, yeah. when you, when you have source material, it kind of helps you like graft out, you know, the, the parts of the story that you, that you think would be really cinematic. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then you can kind of get rid of some of the, you know, the more novelistic things, uh, right. about the, the book. Yeah. It, um, it's probably the only example of the gangster movie on here, but the kind of like the impact, even, okay, even if you were to take the impact it had on Martin Scorsese alone, that would be a landmark in film because a lot of his movies like um, Goodfellas and The Irishman and um, I'm trying to think of some of his other movies and I'm just blanking, but he's made... Casino and... Uh, yes. Um, the Departed, like uh, Gangs of New York, dude. Gangs that guy's of New made York. So many gangster movies. <laughs> right. He makes, honestly, he makes the same genre, and I think he's gonna make another gangster movie. And like, I think it's slated to come out in like 2022 or something. But oh, he's made so many gangster movies, and they're all kind of like grandchildren of the Godfather movies. And yeah, I would agree. They've they all speak the same language. They kind of all feel the same way. It's all like the Italian mobsters, like the macho, the, the, the culture of the New York mobster is kind of um, iconicized the, in Scorsese's It's the Corleone movies. cinematic universe. Right. It truly is. It feels like if Marvel could make gangster movies, it would be The Godfather <laughs> and then Scorsese. And it would just be like this clean little rainbow bridge that takes you from Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> to Martin Scorsese. And it's like there's no difference almost. Yeah. Well, Ford Coppola actually had a pretty profound influence on, I think, who is the director of our next pick. Uh, good old GL. Yeah. Good old Mr. Lucas. Mr. Lucas. Yeah. So why don't you explain that and like how um, George Lucas kind of like paid homage to Francis Ford Coppola? Shoot, dude. I, I don't know. <laughs> 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 um, I don't I honestly don't remember if, you know, if, if they were colleagues or if they like if Ford Coppola was like. Lucas's teacher or it was some kind of relationship like that. Like they, they had a relationship working in cinema, um, yeah. you know, kind of like Spielberg and Lucas did, but, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure like the specifics of that. Um, yeah. but, but I do know that Lucas kind of like Ford Coppola kind of goes in, you know, the dramatic direction like mm -hmm. the the dark cinema, you know, Lucas kind of aimed to make like really lighthearted movies. And you right. can see that in like American Graffiti and you can see that in Star Wars. Um, pretty much everything is made. He hasn't really made anything that's like, you know, dark and gritty other than like his student film. Um, uh, what was that called? It's like THX. 
some like random list of numbers or something like that. Um, wasn't there wasn't there like some film he made with Spielberg? Oh, I could be way off base here. Isn't there like a, a movie he makes with Spielberg where he blows up a house with a rocket launcher? <laughs> Do you know I what know. I'm talking about? I mean, that, I, I, he made um, the Indiana Jones films with Spielberg. Yeah, he did. I don't know what I'm thinking of. I think there was something like at the very beginning of Spielberg's career, he yeah. made some movie and George Lucas was involved with it. And it was just like this really goofy thing. And I think I've seen it on YouTube somewhere. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Huh. But anyway, um, what we all know George Lucas for is Star Wars. And what we will forever know George Lucas as, or from is Star Wars. And if anything on this movie had an impact on culture, it was Star Wars. Um, it also won a ton of Academy Awards. I think it was nominated for 10 and won six. Um, mm-hmm. But and there was a ton of, especially in the originals, and there's still some kind of like breadcrumbs of this in the newer films that they've made. But um, the techniques in the original movies were absolutely groundbreaking, earth shattering, mm, uh, totally. like never before seen kind of things. Um, it has deficiencies, and and you know these movies are an- analyzed and overanalyzed and like I mean people have been talking about star wars since 1977 like yeah um the fandom for star wars is so rabid Um, oh my word i know grayson is probably maybe one of the biggest star wars fans on planet earth yeah um i'm not a massive star wars person but i appreciate star wars i do enjoy star wars and you know i still get heated about the new ones just like everybody else but um, Star Wars is, I, it still holds up, which I think is really impressive. Um, yeah. A New Hope isn't necessarily the best of the original movies. I think Empire Strikes Back is easily the best of all of them. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan in that movie create like, like there's just so much that is absolutely iconic about those movies i mean darth vader and the whole concept of like ships flying and it actually look like they're flying it doesn't look like they're on like some little tape wire and just being dragged across the frame (laughs) like it looks really good and there's a lot of groundbreaking cg techniques and things like that um it along with another movie we'll talk about here soon jaws were like these summer blockbusters um and that also just the fact that they were summer blockbusters is a massive um kind of like impact on cinema because now we expect all our marvel movies in the summer we expect you know our nolan movies in the summer um and it used to not be that way it used to be that summer was the dead period just like with a normal nine to five job you kind of like you know work a ton in the the spring uh, fall and winter and then in the summer you kind of like take your vacations and it's just a lot more lax and chill and you feel like nobody's really doing anything and everything's just kind of dull and dry well yeah. it used to be that way for movies and it is very much not that way anymore largely in part because of star wars until covid when we couldn't go yeah. see movies anymore <laughs> yeah but this yeah is, dude, uh, you're totally right um star wars is one of those movies that i mean i'm sitting here wearing a star wars shirt right now like 
um, it, it has ingrained itself into like every fiber of our beings, I think. Yeah. Like as a kid, do you know how much Star Wars I watched? I probably oh, watched probably more Star Wars than I just watched like life unfold in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> Star, I just like, like ate, slept, breathed like Star Wars. Like that's, yeah. that's pretty much all I did. Um, and Star Wars is one of those movies that, you know, it's culturally significant. It's kind yeah. of the reason that movies are the way they are today. Yeah. Um, but it's also technologically significant because it introduced a lot of uh, techniques and tricks that nobody saw coming. Like, mm-hmm. the thing I love the most about Star Wars, I think, especially the original Star Wars, I won't call it New Hope because that's a silly title. And yeah, I'll just call it Star Wars because that's what it's called. Yeah. Um, but Star Wars was um, one of those movies that nobody wanted to take a chance on. Like, George Lucas spent so long just, like, begging studios, like, please, please let me make this movie. Like, I have right. to make it. And everybody's like, what are you talking about, man? This is such a silly idea. Right. Like People thought it was totally goofy. And they're, like, and even after A Space Odyssey, which supposedly brought legitimacy to the sci-fi genre... Yeah. Star Wars couldn't get made. No. And I think it's just because of the campiness of Star Wars, right? Yeah. Like, you, you read George Lucas's script and you're like, dude, <laughs> come <laughs> on, man. Like... <laughs> Yeah, his thing like, is even not... Harrison Ford, like in the middle of the in the middle of filming Harrison Ford's like, hey, Lucas, um, I'm going to save this. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to be OK with that because this is ridiculous. <laughs> right. He so for all of his abilities as a world builder and a storyteller, George yeah. Lucas can't write dialogue worth a shit. Like <laughs> yeah. his dialogue and that's been said before. <laughs> right. But we like just his... have to mention that. Right. His dialogue ability is so poor. And I think it really came out in the um, the sequels. Um, what is it? I, I always get them confused. It's the, prequel, the prequels. The prequels. There we go. Yeah. Not the sequels. Yep. Yeah. Um, the prequels, especially, especially uh, uh, Phantom Menace, like the dialogue is just laughable. Like it's so bad. Oh, dude, so I bad. hate the dialogue in Attack of the Clones way more. That movie, it's I can barely too. make it through it. It's bad too, but at least like the CG clones sort of kind of hold up. You know, oh, that's true. Those look like good, the yeah. Gungans in uh, Phantom Menace. They just look so goofy, and I'm like, that is a <laughs> rubber lizard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just look like plastic toys. Like right even before and, they. <laughs> and then you got you know Jar Jar Binks, which we won't even talk about that. And then you have no. Padme walk in and just say, "What are we going to do?" And Qui Gon's like, "We have to do something good." And then Obi-Wan's like, let's kill him. And then Obi-Wan, or uh, Qui-Gon's like, no, we can't do that. That's mean. We're <laughs> Jedi. And it's like, yeah. oh my God. Like, this Dude, is terrible. I think the prequels are kind of what the original, or what Star Wars would have been if people hadn't have, like, intervened with the original yeah. ones, you know? Yeah. Because, like, the prequels, it's like George Lucas just... <laughs> like doing whatever he wants like it's basically like flash gordon like it's just a tv serial um like he's just making a movie because you know he's got to tell it and that's great that's that's super cool um on like nowadays with marvel and everything like that i think star wars is kind of the it's it's impact 
um, kind of shows in the Marvel films because yeah, the Marvel movies are basically like a, a long running TV show movie, you mm-hmm. know, like, right. Like it's episodic, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, Star Wars was one of those first movies to be really, and, and no one thought it was going to make it past the, the original, you know, right. But once it started, you know, making more episodes, adding new parts, um, it, it started to kind of become serialized and we see that a lot now. Um, like yeah. everybody's trying to make their, you know, their big cinematic universe that, right. Um, so as far as that, like culturally that in the way we make movies now, it had a big in, impact in that way too. Yeah. It was the first set of movies to have an overarching plot where you have like a distinct, um, you know, starting, uh, like beginning midpoint, uh, climax resolution endpoint, not just in the individual movies, but like as the series whole. Yeah. And, um, that's probably where you have so much like hate on the sequels is that like, you know, the originals and the prequels, they had that overarching plot that just kind of like blended itself together. So great. And then the sequels yeah. is like, Nope, we're going to throw it on the trash. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Um, but it, it did that so well and you're right. Like Marvel is directly influenced by that idea. They've made like 20 Marvel movies that fill all one plot and to be able to make, you know, what is that? Like 40 to 50 hours of screen time fit in a, like it actually have a con like a, a, a understood plot that follows all conventional plot archetype and things like that that's i mean it's directly influenced by star wars totally yeah it's funny now that like you know marvel is kind of you know it it took star wars formula but it's kind of carved out its own like genre its own you know way of doing things and now the people over at lucasfilm are like oh we gotta we gotta do what marvel's doing <laughs> yep they're, they're like oh man they they had a gold mine in, in star they, it's like they forgot star wars was like you know the first one to do it yeah, because I think Marvel had um, they had a plan, and I hate to say it because it sounds like really condescending when you say it that way. <laughs> yeah, because it just insinuates that Star Wars is just like this thrown together mismatch of ideas and things, yeah. and it's not that bad. But you know, Marvel is much more planned, and um, everything is kind of. It's got a theme. It's got a central theme to the whole thing. And Star Wars, as it's gone on, it's lost that a little bit. But the initial initial trilogy was just like earth-shattering a whole new... Like a whole new world in in movie making because everybody wanted to go find its Star Wars. And then you had things like, uh, you know, Star Trek was coming along around that same time too... And yeah. it exploded as well, probably because of Star Wars, because yeah. everybody then wanted the next sci-fi fantasy, you know, space fantasy thing to, to come out. And yeah. and Star Wars kind of like directly influenced that. Star Trek took a little bit longer to like make it out of the nerd category, though. <laughs> it did. <laughs> it was like J.J. Abrams was like, man, I want I want my nerdiness to be spread around the world. So he, he made Star Trek 2009. And, like, tried to amp it up and make it, like, you know, the Marvel films or whatever. Right. And those uh, movies were so good. 
And yeah, I, I like those ones. Honestly, I haven't seen any of the uh, the uh, older Star Trek films. I, I was never really a Trekkie. No, I'm I'm not either. <laughs> Just kind of saying I, that like makes my ugh, yeah. Weird is that what they're called? Like, is now. that what the group of fans for Star Trek is called? Trekkies? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Not positive. That's, that's super. That sounds like something that Sheldon would say on Big Bang Theory. <laughs> I like I don't even like saying that. Can we take a break real quick? I got a pee like a yeah. racehorse. Yeah, we'll take a break. We'll come back. So really quickly, I'm sure you all have noticed that Grayson is not in this episode. However, he did want to talk about some of the movies we'll be going over in this episode. So for the next few minutes, sit back, take a break from Seth and I, and enjoy Grayson talking about some of the movies on this list and also some extra additions that he wanted to add as well. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Grayson. Uh, first and foremost, I want to apologize that I am not there on this episode with Josh and Seth, um, but I know that they're going to kill it over there. Um, so I am here in spirit, and I wanted to record something to um, just put a little bit of my input of um, or regarding movies that I think have arguably shaped and uh, defined cinema over the past, well, since cinema has existed. Um most of my, most of one of the ones that I'm going to talk about um, are pretty predictable, and, and I know for a fact Josh and Seth will talk about um, most of these, if not all of them. But I still wanted to put my thoughts out there and just talk about them a little bit. So, first of all, I wanted to talk about. Um, I'm, I'm going to leave the best for last because I have a couple on here that that was the very first that I thought of, but I'm going to wait for those till the end because there's one that I think they're not going to cover and. Um, and I want to talk about it, so we'll wait till the end. But the first thing I want to talk about is Spider-Man from 2002, um, directed by Sam Raimi. Um, this is probably a movie that they will not talk about. Um, however, I think this movie um, was one of the biggest movies for the modern age of superhero films. Um, we have gotten a lot of superhero films before Spider-Man 2002. Um, we had gotten Superman, um, Batman, Batman Returns, and those movies were really huge for also superhero movies, but I think Spider-Man 2002 was the first one where it was like fully had come to life, especially with like the fight scenes and whatnot. Like, te like the technology was a lot more advanced with CGI and whatnot. And you see that even more in Spider-Man two, which I think is still one of the greatest, um, comic book movies of all time. Um, what Sam, Ra Sam Raimi did with that movie, it just, um, it really helped, I don't think the MCU would exist without um, without this movie, and it just showed that you know comic book characters can be done right on film. Um, but I cannot mention superhero films without talking about The Dark Knight, possibly one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, we can't we can't not talk about Heath Ledger's Joker, one of the greatest performances um, that actors can only strive to to be as good as. Um, he's possibly one of the greatest performances of all time. Um, Christopher Nolan is an ex excellent director. Um, and this was a movie that really, it kind of transcended a comic book movie. It felt more like a real movie about comic book characters and putting them in a real world environment. And it's just, it's just such a cultural icon that you can't not mention the dark Knight. Um, next up, I want to mention Jurassic park, uh, Jurassic park. I know they're going to talk about it. The reason this movie is so huge, first of all, it's an it's an amazing movie, but 
the biggest thing about it is what this did for computer generated um, imagery or CGI. Um, it was it, CGI would not be where it is today without this movie. I mean, it was it, it perfectly blended practical effects with with CGI in um, in just a perfect way. And I think most films should look at Jurassic Park. Um, when it comes to balancing practical effects and um, and visual effects, because we see a lot of movies now that just overuse CGI, and and CGI can be a really great thing, but it needs to go hand in hand with practical effects. And Jurassic Park was the was the first to just completely blow you away with CG, and for some that still somewhat holds up, even when it's on film from the '90s, and it also just had really great animatronics and puppetry. Um, and and the real sets were really well done as well. So um, Jurassic Park is kind of the the gold standard when it comes to um, special effects, and uh, many movies that we that we watch today would would not be the same without Jurassic Park. I mean, it was a landmark for that. Um, another thing regarding um, CGI, and that is Toy Story, um, the first one especially. Um, all, even though all three of them and every other Pixar movie has been fantastic, but this one was kind of Pixar's first and and biggest um, movie. And, and considering it was a fully animated movie using only CGI was astounding. Um, the amount of processing power they had to have on their computers at that time was just insane. But um, I mean, this is what put Pixar on the map really. And it changed animation forever. Um, so I don't think you can go... Um, and and talk about the greatest movies or the most impactful movies without talking about Toy Story because it changed the game for animation. I don't think we would have gotten films. I mean, obviously the other Pixar films, but um, other movies from from DreamWorks and even Spider Verse, I think, which is um, which is, is CGI as well. So um, Toy Story really really put CGI as an animation form on the map. Um, the last two are going to seem pretty predictable. I'll talk about um, the first one very briefly, and then the second one is has a more of a unique impact. So um, you can't you can't not go and talk about the most impactful movies uh, on cinema and not talk about Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars was so much. Uh, Star and I'm talking about A New Hope, of course. Originally, it was just called Star Wars. Um, from what it did with special effects, I mean, this. It still is one of the most beautiful and well-made movies using all practical effects from the miniatures to puppets to the costumes. Everything was so well done, and it just gave it this real gritty feel that everything felt used and and lived in, and that just added this charm to Star Wars. Um, And inevitably, we kind of lost that with the prequels, but I think that's what George Lucas was going for. But that's one thing that, you know, ILM, um, I mean... They ILM was created because of Star Wars, and it's the biggest powerhouse when it comes to special effects and um, and and CGI, and and that's why when every year when a Marvel or a Star Wars movie comes out, they have the best CGI, like in terms of Thanos or you know the star the Star Destroyers in Rogue One. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, it's just Star Wars. It started it all for that. Um. And it's just, it's just this another another cultural icon uh, in terms of filmmaking. But 
it really changed the way films were made. And um, if anybody is interested, absolutely go watch the documentary Empire of Dreams. It is on Disney Plus, I believe. And it is a documentary about how the original trilogy was made. And it is incredibly fascinating. If you love movies, please go watch it, especially if you love Star Wars. Um, I know for a fact Star Wars was really what got me into movies and filmmaking um, the more that I thought about it. And I know it's a, it has impacted so many other young filmmakers and, and now filmmakers that are, um, are, are famous. I mean, you think of, of, of a lot of other directors. And Star Wars is just, it has been so profoundly impactful on such a large audience that um, it's undoubtedly one of the, the biggest and most impactful movies. But the last thing I want to talk about is actually Empire Strikes Back. Um, yet again, that everything that I said about the first one still holds up here in Empire Strikes Back, the, the special effects and whatnot. But the one thing that I think this movie did for the movie industry is how it shaped spoiler culture. There, before this movie, spoilers and people being afraid of what would happen in the movies, would it, it simply was not a thing. Until, you know, Darth Vader reveals that he's Luke's father. And that was one of the biggest shocks of all time. And if anybody's on Letterboxd, by the way, you can follow me at StraightsThere8 on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Um, you can write reviews, and it says, uh, this review contains spoilers if you click that button. And the logo is literally a Darth Vader icon. That That is, what, <laughs> that is how... Um, powerful that moment was and it shocked audiences i still to this day i'll go find um reactions of parents showing their kids the the reveal of that from kids who don't know that darth vader is luke's father and even then i found a an old clip on youtube of an audience's reaction to darth vader revealing that and it's just one of those moments that like i i was born long after the empire strikes back came out a whole 19 years after but that's one thing that I would have loved to have seen in theaters. And, you know, spoilers and spoiler alerts and, and all of that are all attributed to how um, to how the, this moment, it, it, this huge moment um, in film and storytelling uh, came to be. So um, those are all the movies that I want to talk about. I know there are a lot more on Josh and Seth's radar that they're going to talk about, and I have many thoughts on as well, but I figured that was a good um, five or six to, to talk about pretty briefly and um, at least put my two cents on. So anyway, back to Josh and Seth. So Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Yeah, man. Um, it's by a guy who's got two movies on this list in James Cameron. Um, it's, it's kind of here similar for a similar reason as Godfather two. Um, I think Godfather two and Terminator two are considered two of the better, uh, sequels ever. Um, yeah, totally. but Terminator, Terminator two was also like in a, it was in a mainstream series. Whereas Godfather, Godfather was kind of mainstream, but it was more of like the, the film communities, like dream trilogy, whereas the Terminator films were like America's movies. Um, the average <laughs> movie goer, uh, was watching Terminator instead of the Godfather. Yeah. Um, and the second one made a 
ton of money. Um, yeah, I'm sure it did. It's, let's see. I think it made 90 million in the US. Um, I think it was made for like 30 million bucks. And so okay, that's pretty good. it made 520 million worldwide. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. But Arnold made like 12 to 15 million dollars on that movie. Oh, which yeah, is just he did. absurd. <laughs> it was like Robert Downey Jr. before Robert Downey Jr. Um, it made a ton of money. Like, yeah, just the figures in this movie um, for 1990 are just crazy. But also, and this is greatly influential on film, which is why it's here. It had the first naturally moving uh, CGI character in the, uh, what do they call it? The cyborg, like the the liquid guy, you know, how he would like go through yeah, objects the, and things like that. The, uh, what is it, like the T-3000 T or something like that? T-1000, yeah. something like that, yeah. Yeah, it was like the first totally CG character. And you see that a lot with, um, I mean, nowadays that happens all the time. But yeah. at the time in 1990, 91, whatever, yeah that didn't happen at all like yeah um yeah that's that's true um the the way that they developed that um was actually in a movie before terminator 2 um and have you heard of the movie the abyss it's also by james cameron no it stars um ed harris um uh love ed harris is in it but that movie was the first, the first to do that liquid CG effect. Uh-huh. Um, there's like a moment in the film where they encounter like a, um, like an alien basically. Right. But it's like in the shape of water, and it like mimics the actor's face. Um, Interesting. It's a really cool looking scene. But that kind of like opened the doors to do the Terminator effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that was kind of like a big. That was like a I don't know like a twenty second scene in the abyss, right? And you know in in T two it's like you know a big deal. It's it's a, like a big effect, a big selling point. Right. But actually, the first um, fully CG like animated character is actually in a little movie called The Young Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if you've heard of this. No. Yeah, it, um, ILM did it. Uh, who, which is a company that was. Uh, made while producing Star Wars, right? Um, and you know they developed things like Pixar and things like that. But um, yep. um, they—it's basically in that movie. There's this really short scene where um, the, this uh, priest is in a, a church, and there's a lot of stained glass, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden the glass like starts to shake, and it like jumps off the wall or jumps out of the window, and like becomes this like uh, stained glass night. What? And it's just oh, like this really short scene. I've seen uh, that. I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah, so that was the first fully CG animated okay. character in a live action film. But T2 uh, was really close to that. Yeah. Yeah, I think the movie you're talking about, I've actually seen the movie. Um, I didn't recognize it because, uh, you know, you say Sherlock Holmes, and I don't even think it's about Sherlock Holmes. Like I, I don't even, I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> I just know that one scene. Yeah. It's, um, it's weird because that scene is kind of believable. I mean, it doesn't hold up now, but, yeah. um, 
you can see it and be like, oh, that's a knight. And um, yeah, it's really interesting uh, that, you know, T2, you're right. It was not like the first, like the actual first to do some things, but it was the first to yeah. kind of like, uh, to make it known, um, yeah. to kind of like take a technique and lift it from like a, a, a very indie project that yep. maybe did it on an extremely small scale and take it and be like, okay, we're going to take this and we're going to do it big. And, um, and it turned into money, which is why James Cameron had and has such a long career where he can make movies like Avatar, um, because yeah. he's already kind of like pioneered some of these other oh, yeah. techniques and it made Arnold Schwarzenegger, who <laughs> is not a great actor, it made him a <laughs> well-known actor for, yeah. you know, action films and things like that. Yeah. Um, dude, James Cameron is, he's a revelation, man. Like, he's one of those directors that you kind of like, you look at and you're just kind of like, he just looks like a normal Joe. <laughs> right, he really does. Like, but he's made some of the most successful movies and groundbreaking movies of all time. Yeah. Which is crazy. And like his shortlist, the dude, like he's got some of the biggest movies ever made on his yeah. belt. Like who, who else is like that? That like he's, he's produced other than like George Lucas or something like that. But this guy's produced like some of the biggest cinematic achievements in the last like 30 years. Right. Yeah. His movies all make a lot of money. And, um, I think I was telling somebody this the other day, but you know, part of, and this is not the part that you and I personally enjoy about filmmaking, but part of filmmaking yeah. is getting your movies to make money. And, yeah. and even though, um, you could be like some of our favorite directors, like yours would be like David Lowry and mine is like Robert Eggers. Their <laughs> movies make money like on a really, really small scale, but they yep. don't make like money, you know, like they'll make a movie on a budget of 3 million and it'll make like 10, you know, which is yeah. a financial success. It made back its budget and it made more than what it was made for. That's a totally. success, but it's yep. not like a movie that's made for 20 million and it makes a $600 million return internationally <laughs> like james cameron's movies make a f ton of money yes and, they do and that alone is worth noting and it's kind of like he's got a reputation and he kind of he holds up to it each time he releases a movie whether he's directing it or producing it um yeah you know what's crazy the dude hasn't he's made two movies in the last like 23 years he made Avatar in 2008, right? Somewhere around there, yeah. And um, what was the other one? Was he? Did he produce Titanic. Alita? Oh, Titanic. He produced it, yeah. Okay. So, Titanic and Gosh. Avatar. Like, he's only made two movies this... Well, one movie this century. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Yeah, Titanic came out in 1998, right? Somewhere around there. I think it might have been 97, but yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, and it, and you, like you said earlier, it held the record for the highest grossing movie ever made. Until um, he beat it with Avatar. <laughs> right. Until he beat it with Avatar. And I remember, yeah. and we'll talk about this in a little bit, so I won't get into it a ton, but I remember when Avatar yep. came out and that was around the time 
I would have been 10 when Avatar came out. So mm-hmm. I remember kind of like the cultural buzz that that movie had. I remember I was talking to my neighbor one day and he was like, dude, have you ever seen Avatar? And I was like, <laughs> no, I'm 10. Like, <laughs> I think he was, he was like five or six years older. So he was like 16, 15, something like that. And he had just seen it in 3D. And Ooh, I remember that was the I thing you had to that. do. I, I know, I wish I could see that movie in 3D now, but I remember that was the thing you had to do is you had to go see that in 3D because otherwise yeah. it just was not the same. And he was like, you ever seen Avatar? And I was like, no, I'm 10. And he was like, <laughs> dude, watch that movie. It will blow your mind. But that that's truly like what James Cameron has done with his movies is he's made movies that will blow your mind. Oh, and, totally, yeah. And maybe Titanic doesn't necessarily blow your mind, but everybody's going to tell you like, yeah, Titanic is great. I think that was probably like every 20-something girl's favorite movie between the ages of 13 and 18. Totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that movie is, uh, it's, I think it holds up pretty well. It's a pretty yeah. classic romance, but it has some really big like cinematic moments. Um, it does. Yeah, and it managed to fit a lot into, I mean, it's a three-hour movie, but, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons to watch it. Yeah. It's um it's a big movie, it's a long movie. It's got, you know, it's got iconic moments. It's one of those things where um you know, the ship itself uh the set for that movie was pretty impressive. Oh um, yeah. But I think with that movie it wasn't like they did anything. It was one of those like a lightning in a bottle kind of moments where they just kind of cast the right people the script was just you know what it needed to be um everything all the puzzles just the puzzle pieces just seemed to kind of like fit together and it wasn't because of any one spectacular thing that made that movie just blow up um but it was just kind of like the whole collective yeah there had been previous titanic movies made Mm -hmm. um you know in the past uh, like older films um that didn't launch nearly as well and i think uh, i don't remember who i think it might have been 20th century or something like that who produced that movie or distributed it um but they were nervous because like titanic it it ended up being one of the most expensive film productions up to that point um and like they weren't planning on it but the budget kept like going up and up and up (laughs) right but it paid off because you know that movie you know, rock the world. Um, it made so much money. Yeah. But back to T2, I think you can really like, not that it's the genesis of James Cameron because he has so many like, you know, big, unique properties under his belt. But um, right, it's definitely where like his recognition started to like take place. Um, and he could start doing, you know, crazy stuff like Titanic and Avatar. Yeah. An interesting fact about that movie is that the trailer itself well, how about this? How would you guess how much the trailer costs to make? Just the trailer. For T2? Yeah. Um, uh, geez, I don't know. A couple million? No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it costs $150,000. I don't know how much it costs to make trailers. <laughs> it, does not cost much, it does not cost that much. I, 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 think, Good. I think a normal trailer would cost like 60 grand or something. Okay, all right. Well, that's so not bad. Like, yeah, it's like double what a normal modern day trailer would cost. Yeah. But yeah, T2 was um 
let's see, it won um, four Technical Academy Awards, which is, I think, a testament to what makes this movie special. It was yeah. awards for makeup, sound, visual effects, and uh, sound editing. Oh, and yeah. um, that fits all the... Uh, yeah, it's like, it's the just theory. a technological interesting movie i mean even more like we we would enjoy it it's not just a movie that only film junkies will enjoy it's very much a mainstream film but the techniques used in it were kind of like all these um smaller scale projects done big and and done at like the kind of like the premiere level for that time Mm -hmm. and i mean it translated translated to a lot of money it made a lot of careers. It won awards. Um, yeah, it kind of like set the stage a little bit for movies that would come later, like Jurassic Park and The Matrix, um, yeah. which are also kind of like pretty major movies in film history. Like Jurassic Park almost has a Star Wars kind of like following to it. Yeah, it does. Um, and it, its techniques would not really have existed without T2. Yeah, Totally. So how many tar- how many times has uh, Arnold been back since T two? <laughs> <laughs> uh, was he in Terminator Salvation? I have no idea, dude. I assume he's in all of them. I, if I he was in Salvation, it's been at least fifteen. <laughs> I remember. I remember. I watched um, Terminator Genesis. Yeah. With Amelia Clark and Jai Courtney and Arnold, and. Um, I remember he said, I'll be back in that movie. And I was like, dude, he said he'll be back like 25 years ago. Why is this happening again? Yeah, how many times though? (laughs) (laughs) Like, can we stop just like riding on the coattails of Terminator? But yeah, it's, talk about iconic. Anyway, uh, we're going to move on to a, a, a tiny, a tiny little movie from a tiny little director that nobody's ever heard of. Um, in fact, you just watched this movie, uh, Pulp Fiction, mm. by Terry. Oh, I forgot this was on the list, actually. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking we were gonna jump straight to uh, Matrix. We should. Well, spoilers. No, we're not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, we got a, a couple. The one after this one is was really quick, but um, Pulp Fiction is. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about Pulp Fiction. Yeah. It's a and, pretty polarizing movie, honestly. Yeah. Um, I enjoy... And this is just for me. The The thing I love most about this movie is its opening and its dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole, like... I mean, I personally don't like John Travolta in just about anything. Yeah. Ever. Like, I don't think yeah. he's ever done anything that I enjoyed seeing his face in. Um, but even in this movie, I'll give him a pass because he's standing next to, uh, you know, Samuel L. Jackson. But um, the opening of this film is so, like, I don't know how to describe it. I remember I wrote a short film kind of like essentially completely just ripping the opening scene (laughs) of Pulp Fiction and just kind of like lifting it and putting in a whole different scenario so that you didn't know what I was actually doing. But I remember I studied that scene so much um, and just kind of like the the way the characters would talk to each other was very stylistic 
and and new and um each character had its their or their own like um their own uh way of speaking mm-hmm. and kind of like their own diction which is really interesting and uh Tarantino's another one of those directors where it's like he writes it and that is law like that is yeah. what it is you're saying what he wrote there's a reason yeah. why he wrote it that way and you know I mean it it has worked out but yeah well I think one of the reasons for that is all of Tarantino's work is really referential yeah like he references film so often like he he references music a ton like he references mm-hmm. just like pop culture and people a whole lot and sometimes it's not it's like stuff that I don't I don't even get like right. I think a lot of people feel like that they're like what is Tarantino even talking about here but it's yep. so entertaining because of like the pace that he writes at you know um and as far as pulp fiction it's like it's that movie that like if you're a film student in college and you, you like don't it. have this movie on your shelf right <laughs> it's almost like you don't count <laughs> right <laughs> i remember i remember when we were like uh, in classes together and um, there was one guy who just had this larger than life personality and he yeah. didn't know jack about film or film language he just yeah. knew like what you could find on a magazine cover about yeah. film <laughs> like he knew the basic stuff that everybody knew and he kind yeah. of like spouted it like it was the film bible and I remember he would talk about <laughs> uh, Pulp Fiction like it was Citizen Kane like it was mm-hmm. that monumental to film and yeah. you know spoiler alert it's not but yeah. um, it it is in its own way a great contribution to cinema but you're right like if if you're a college student and you're a film student <laughs> you don't count unless you've seen or can speak fluently with another human being about Pulp Fiction <laughs> or just Tarantino in general like his right his film language is so unique like even I think Pulp Fiction was so influential because of its structure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those movies that like the structure almost makes no sense. Like the, it doesn't follow any kind of like, you know, uh, of course, there's like plot devices and MacGuffins and things like that. Like there's the iconic MacGuffin, right? The like briefcase. The, the suitcase or the briefcase. Yeah. yeah. Um, and but uh, but the plot structure it doesn't really follow one like you no. could sketch one onto it if you really tried but like um it's it's all over the place with the way it tells its story and the way it connects its characters and i think that yeah. was a really unique thing at that time you know because there's pretty strict story archetypes um and like the way that tarantino found a new one you know is I think was really intriguing to a lot of young storytellers. Plus, the movie is just so freaking vulgar. Like, right? W- watching it, you're you're like, how could who let him say that? Yep. <laughs> you I know, know. Like, with his uh, little cameo, he's like spouting off, and you're like, dude, someone needs to you know put a muzzle on this guy. <laughs> like, right? He's sitting there like making me uncomfortable watching his movie. <laughs> right. And I think and- that's why a lot of people really like it. Yeah, a lot of people like it, but also for the same reason, a lot of people hate it. And I think, you know, like Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill, um, they created those three movies specifically, but, you know, Pulp Fiction more than the others, created its own genre, um, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting that it happened 
I mean, 1995 or whatever, when it came out, is still relatively recent in terms of the history of movie making. And for somebody to create something completely new uh, that had never before been seen, that recently is impressive. And um, Pulp Fiction is that. Like, it is... I'm sure everybody listening to this knows about Pulp Fiction or has seen it. Uh, so you all will know what I'm talking about when it's just like, it's just a one of a kind. And that's why a lot of these movies are here is they are one of a kind. And, you know, you can only have so many one of a kinds, but you know, in its own way, it's just like, I mean, there's no structure. There's MacGuffins everywhere. There's, um, so much idiosyncratic dialogue and just like this flowery, (laughs) like really bizarre way of approaching a story. And like how many plot twists are in this movie like three or four there's honestly i think the whole movie is of one big plot twist because <laughs> like the majority of the time there's like you have no idea where things are gonna go like right. ever um yeah. and like every scene is shocking and i think yeah. that's the way it's supposed to be like i i, I really think like tarantino like was like man i, I just want to make a movie that like is gonna blow the socks off people Yep. when they first watch it and they're going to be able to go back and like analyze it and be like what was he thinking here and tarantino was probably like i don't even care man <laughs> right he truly kind of approaches it like a he's got like a nonchalance but like a a great respect yeah. for you know film and the things oh, that he's totally. making that's and a great way to describe him yeah a nonchalance but also a respect yeah yeah it's funny um when he was casting for once upon a time in hollywood he, mm-hmm. the story goes that he brought Brad Pitt to his house, who also, by the way, has a massive appreciation for film in general. Um, yep. His production credits are a mile long. Um, he gives money to, you know, B and even C movies regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he brought it, he, Tarantino brought Brad Pitt to his house and he pulled out film reels of movies from like the 30s. And yeah. he's showing him, he's like, here's what I want this to look like and you know, here's kind of like the the theme I want for this film that we're about to make. And Brad Pitt, yeah, you know, is thinking, yeah, this is the same thing. And these are like these, or this is exactly what I was thinking of. And these are all, you know, film reels of movies that nobody has ever seen, that no mm-hmm. sane person should ever see. And they're both just like, oh, yeah, like this is exactly what I was thinking of when you sent me over the script. Like they have, <laughs> you know, Tarantino is one of those weird unicorn film junkies that yeah. just has seen a bajillion movies understands film language so well to the point that he can write his own language yeah, um, which is true. crazy yeah totally uh we'll just go straight to the matrix um, all right man the the wachowski wachowski siblings yeah um whew, i don't even know where to start with this movie this is, the matrix is like it's probably more of a filmmaking advancement than it is cultural, even though, you know, red pill, red pill, blue pill kind of is like this, you know, yeah. iconic moment. Um, yep. but it's like the, the whole, you know, like the whole like matrix moment when he kind of like goes backward in slow-mo and is dodging bullets and stuff. The like bullet they, time scene. Yeah. 
Right. Like they invented a whole new filmmaking technique for that, um, where they have like a bunch of cameras and they do like the, um, they got them all on this one rig in a line and and they take pictures and just blah, 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 blah. And you got like 40 cameras taking a picture to do this weird slow-mo movement thing. Yeah. Crazy. Um, but even more than that, um, the matrix is like plotting done perfectly. Um, there's so much interesting foreshadowing about Keanu Reeves' character from other characters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, especially like the first scene when, uh, what's the, what's the female's uh, name? Oh, Trinity. Name? Trinity. Yeah. When she's getting chased by cops, yeah. um, she does the whole, like, I mean, she wrecks them. Uh, but there's a line and I can't remember exactly what she says. I just remember it was like this crazy foreshadowing moment, um, when she says like one line in the whole scene. And, Mm. um, I think it was, dang, I can't remember what she said. Anyway, it was like the, the whole, like the correlations that they make between what characters are doing, uh, like uh, Keanu Reeves character he's like he works at like a call center before he gets into like the matrix or whatever and yeah. they do this whole weird thing where like when he's at home and when he's at work there's like the way phones ring um, they create correlations with like sound and, and visuals and subtle mm-hmm. things that the audience will pick up on but like if you were just kind of like casually watching it you wouldn't quite get it um, yeah. they do things like that that's really interesting and kind of like immerses you into the story and it's like it's it's one of those things where like if you see it and you're with some friends you can kind of like elbow and be like yo did you catch that like cool stuff like that that they do um that's really enjoyable to watch yeah yeah there's a lot of neat stuff in the matrix it's one of those movies that i didn't come to appreciate until recently when i rewatched it um yeah like on uh, when i first watched it you know i was younger and you know Still into Star Star Wars more than anything else, you know, like, yeah, uh, trying to find something else that would, you know, um, be as impactful as Star Wars. And The Matrix was never that for me, but definitely, like, I can see there's so many Matrix ripoffs. <laughs> oh my <laughs> like, gosh! Yeah, all around the world, like, so many different film communities have like ripped off The Matrix with like the bullet yeah. time effects. Um, things. I don't know if you ever saw. Um, the one starring Jet Li. No, I don't think so. Anyways, I love Jet Li, but the one is a total Matrix ripoff. It's really? just like a martial arts movie with like slow mo stuff and like it's it's really dorky, right? <laughs> um, but Jet Li's great, so. Uh, but you it, can it's a total give him a Matrix pass ripoff. On it. Yeah, so, I uh, think a lot of martial art movies kind of like do their like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. does its own like weird slow-mo and like well they don't do a ton of slow-mo they do um the road they do, work like, and stuff like that right like uh they'll take techniques it's when they you know matrix bullet time effect is i mean it's like it's so iconic you can't copy it yeah. um and if you do of, you're just like oh that's from the matrix <laughs> right like if you were to um rip effects from other movies which by the way filmmaking is totally just like ripping and lifting ideas from other people and making it fit what you want to do yep um you can't do that with some of the things in the matrix because it's so iconic 
regular people are going to look at it and be like, uh, yeah, he just totally ripped that off. And, <laughs> totally. you know, you can't get away with it the way that you can with some other things. Yeah. The Matrix is a really weird movie, too. Like, there's some visuals in it that you're just like, they're pretty gross. You know, like when he wakes up and he's like just butt naked in like the, the fluid. That the, <laughs> yes. The robots put him, the machines put him in. Yeah. That's, that's or when they put like the, in. isn't there like the, the thing where they stick like the tube in his belly button and he's got to like pull it out? Yeah. There's like that whole scene where he loses, um, like something crawls into him. Yes. Dude, yeah. It's so nasty. Yeah. And that, that movie is almost like a, I don't, um, the the visuals are very noirish. Um yeah. they're kind of like contrasty but they're very pale like there's not much saturation. Mm-hmm. Um and it's done for a reason. And uh it it's meant to look that way. And yeah. and it's interesting because it's like the world when um Neo knows he's in the matrix versus the world when he doesn't know when he's blissfully unaware. There's a big difference yeah. in color and yeah. Um, you know, like before he realizes he's in the matrix, there's a lot more like reds and oranges. Um, Mm -hmm. and then once he's in the matrix, it's all like greens, blues, um, skin tones, whites, blacks, things like that. And they kind of create that separation using film language, which Mm -hmm. is always really cool. And which is why I think a lot of people love that movie. Yeah. Uh, the next couple here, we're going to, you know, speed through these last few, um, although I don't know if we can speed through the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, shoot. We still have Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. Let's just go. Let's just go with Lord of the Rings and see where it takes us. Yeah. And then maybe um, we can, since we already talked about some of the ones coming up. Right. Uh, Lord of the Rings is, whew. I, um, when you okay, talk about iconic, right? Lord of yeah. the Rings is on a level with Star Wars. It doesn't have I mean, because of the original source material, it already had a big following around the world. But then what Peter Jackson did is he just kind of like made uh Tolkien's vision come to life. Mhm. And the original vision was already so spectacular that he didn't have to do what he did with the Hobbit, where he's just like, let's, you know, adapt it loosely and add stuff and subtract stuff. Like he didn't yeah. ha- he didn't do that with the original trilogy. And it was truly like, I mean, shot for shot adaptation. Mm-hmm. And I think they even had to cut a couple of things out just to fit, you know, runtime. Yeah. But, you know, you and I both have watched all those like production blogs that Peter Jackson made where they're just talking about like how they made things. Um, there's so many hours long. Yeah. I mean, you could literally watch like 40 hours of behind the scenes production videos on the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. There's so many things that they do that were unique to that production. Mm -hmm. Um, the, like the extensive use of miniatures, and mm-hmm. like force perspective and things like that. Oh, where, that's so cool how they do all that. Like, okay, explain to the people listening how they made Gandalf and the dwarves look different heights because this is just absolutely fascinating to me. 
Yeah, so it's a thing called force perspective. And basically what that is, is positioning the actors in a way that makes it look like they're on the same plane, but they're actually standing like a hobbit would be standing back farther in the frame than like Gandalf would, who would be closer to camera. So it, the force perspective comes into play. When you're, you're forcing how large the characters look mm-hmm. in the, in the, on the two-dimensional plane that is captured in the film, right? Um, and some of the ways I did that was I built like moving contraptions. If, it, if they're sitting at right. a table, the table kind of moves so that the, you, you don't have like a big gap in the middle of the table where you can see like they're sitting at different tables, you know? Right. Um, and like, same thing with like them sitting on the carriage together. Like it looks like they're sitting right next to each other, but Frodo is actually sitting back away from Gandalf and Gandalf is sitting closer to the camera to make him appear bigger. Um, and they did that, they, uh, did that a lot. They also used, um, enlarged, um, like exoskeletons, like people would walk around in these like big body suits, like walk past yep. camera. Um, they would do some things like, uh, th- they used some, uh, short people to play in some kids to play the, the hobbits and some scenes where they were like off in the distance or, you know, um, yep. it was hard to tell that, you know, those weren't the actors. Um, but like a lot of this stuff really like i don't i don't know how pj did that like how he coordinated all that like how he figured out how to do all that stuff right just imagine like the the monumentous task of like trying to organize i think they shot for 17 months on all three films they all shot them around the same time there's actually a moment in the films where um in the edit the shots back to back are skipping like three years because they they ended up they shot pickups like in like 2002 but they started shooting in 99 and so like there's a moment where it's it's like frodo 99 sam 2002 and that's crazy that like that much time was spent on this film trilogy and it really shows because like the the amount of care put into these movies like there's things left out like tom people love tom bombadil like yep he was always kind of a redundant plot character for me, but, um, you know, for the majority of it, like the Lord of the Rings really captures the spirit of the books that Tolkien was going for. Um, they're really magical, mystical films with some really beautiful action sequences. Yeah. And really like, dude, uh, Lord, the return of the King is one of those movies that every single time I've watched it, I just cry, dude. Yeah. Like it, it gets me every single time. Yeah, it's such good. It's it's more than just like techniques. It's great storytelling. Uh, like yeah. the Battle of Helm's Deep is probably like the movie that when you're going to write a battle, everybody kind of goes back and looks at That's and sees so like, okay, how did they create the tension and the feel that? Because you know, even within a battle, like a story has uh, a an arc or a structure to it where you need to have like your beginning. You need to have a point where you feel like your heroes are going to absolutely lose and they can't win. And then you need to have like your falling action or your twist yeah. where, um, you know, they do, but it needs to make sense where their victory comes at a cost, but it also is believable. And you understand that, you know, even though they're winning, um, it's not just like they just kind of like had a magical out or, it was easy for them to get out of danger. Um, mm-hmm. You need to create stakes. And, you know, they do that so well in Lord of the Rings films. And 
Um, I know even when I was like writing battle scenes for my book, um, I was watching examinations of the Battle of Helm's Deep mm-hmm. because yeah. there's just so much good stuff there. Same thing with Minas Tirith. And, um, you know, there's just like, it truly feels, and, and maybe this is just personal opinion, but it feels like the perfect trilogy. Like, yeah. there's absolutely nothing wrong with those movies at all. I cannot yeah. find a single thing that I'm like, eh, I don't like that. Yep. Like, everything about them is just so perfect. Mm, and yeah. I think a lot of people feel that way, even though there yeah. are, you know, there's, there's some issues in there somewhere. I haven't found them. Um, <laughs> I know they're there, and I've watched them a bunch of times. Uh, I grew up on the extended editions. Like, that was my childhood. Um they're so good such good films and you know it's even more than just like the enjoyable nature of them like there's uh really cool techniques with you know like force perspective with weta studios building some of the coolest if if you take nothing from this episode go watch the freaking feature featurette uh for lord of the rings on weta studios on youtube it will blow your mind the sets yeah. in that movie that are actually miniatures. Yeah. Um, like uh, Minus Morgul is a miniature. That thing is so huge in the film. Like <laughs> yeah. they make it look absolutely massive. Like it literally goes to heaven. Yeah. And it's a miniature. Um, Minus Tirith is a miniature. Uh, like the the things that they were able to make. Um, that whole shot where Aragorn is in the the Hall of the Dead or, or whatever it's called in the mountain and that yeah. whole like mass of skulls comes down on him. Yeah. It's miniatures. Like yeah, it's so crazy. Cool. It's so <laughs> cool the things that they were able to accomplish and it looks so real. Um, yeah. The blending of CG and reality and the use mm. of practical effects. Oh my God. Like such good use of practicals and I wish uh, Peter Jackson would have done that with the Hobbit films. Um, yeah, because he went a little CG crazy after he went a little there. nuts. He was like, "Oh yeah. wait, I can do this. I'm gonna go all out." Yeah. Um, yeah. But the the practic- practical effects that they were able to do in camera makes the Lord of the Rings movies something that will stand the test of time. Like even in 2020, uh, you can look at 20 year old movies and be like, "Oh yeah, these are still like superb yeah. filmmaking efforts," and they will continue to be because they were made in such a way that they will hold up you know, for a really, really long time. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. My love for Lord of the Rings is, uh, is everlasting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We've already talked about Avatar, so we're going to skip that really quick and we're going to do, there's, there's two movies left that I want to touch on. And these are both here just because, uh, they had a great impact on society and culture as a whole. Um, we've kind of gotten past like the film, the filmmaking jargon, um, and this is just movies that everybody has seen, everybody's talked about. Um, the first of these is Avengers in 2012 mm-hmm. and kind of like in parentheses Infinity War because uh, I think they both had and a similar game, effect yeah. on culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, nothing like what Avengers was had happened before this. Not only was it a superhero movie and superhero movies were new, Um, The first, like, I mean, they'd had Superman in, like, the 70s, and they'd had Batman movies in the 90s, but they were never really, like, a cultural, uh, it was never, like, the pulse of culture. 
and um, Iron Man came out in 2008, 2007, 2008. Incredible Hulk came out around the same time, mm-hmm. 2006-ish. And then, uh, you know, just four years, five years later, Avengers came out, and it was like crazy, yeah. absolutely crazy. It created, again, it created like its own genre totally. of, of film. Yeah. It was one of those movies where everybody went to see it. Because yeah. I remember, like, I hadn't even seen the other films. And there I am, like, sitting in the cinema watching Avengers. And I'm like, I don't even know what the heck's going on right now. Because <laughs> I, 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 like, wasn't into superheroes or anything like that. Because, yeah. you know, Star Wars nerd over here still. Right. But, uh, like, yeah, I just remember, like, having so much fun um, with Avengers. You know, it was de- it's definitely a really great... I think what draws people to the the Marvel films so much is how communal they are. Yeah. They're like this trilogy that you can just or not a trilogy, it's like a film series that you can just watch together. And there's there's so like they're so watchable, they're so easy to consume. Um and like as far as where cinema is going, like of course you're going to have, you know, your um your art house films, like your deep dives, character studies. Right. Um and they can blend too, like like Joker. Um, yeah, Joker's a good example of the of cinema and you know the new cinema blending. Yeah. Um, and but uh, you know Avengers was a really cool thing to witness, um, and then have that enunciated with uh, Endgame and Infinity War. After that, you know, the effect is you know it's it's still a big deal. Um, yeah. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Um, no, Don't they're going to keep, that, <laughs> yeah, they're going to keep making them and what they've made like 20 Marvel movies at this point. Yeah. I think it's like 22 or 23 or something like that. Right. And maybe aside from Captain Marvel, I don't think anybody would say any of them suck, uh, which is really <laughs> impressive. I haven't seen Captain Marvel. <laughs> oh, it's so cringy. I was talking <laughs> to my sister the other day about it, how just like, it's so surprisingly bland and boring um and normally marvel movies are very much not that yeah um but it's just like so remarkably uneventful it's like this movie stinks not because it's like (laughs) bad like you know there's nothing in it that's like ooh, like it's not like the room you know like Mm, just resoundingly awful it's just so like that movie's just so bad. It's good, <laughs> right. dude. I don't know if you've ever tried to watch that movie, but it is painful. <laughs> I have, I have a personal joy for like the Ugly Ducklings movies. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. The Room is, yeah, it's that. It's so bad. Like it it's really so is. bad. You enjoy it because it's just like you watch it and you're like this is the worst thing i've ever seen (laughs) (laughs) it's so awkward too like there's a surprising amount of sex in that movie and you're like wait a minute (laughs) tommy what are you doing right he's like he's like i want to show my butt and it's like why (laughs) have you seen disaster artist (laughs) i want to show my ass you're like tommy what it's going to sell the movie, trust me. Right. He's like, people want to see sex. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> Not like that. No. Oh, man. Yeah, it's so awkward. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure the Avengers broke 
Avatar's uh, box office record at yeah. the time. It truly was, like you said, like everybody saw it. Um, yeah, it was the the number one superhero film. Um, let's see, it made I think six hundred twenty something million domestically, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's um, a lot. yeah, Black Panther actually passed it in 2018 oh sweet yeah but that was another one of those movies that like everybody saw it yeah totally and um yeah it ended up making 1.5 billion and uh let's see titanic made 2.1 billion and avatar made 2.7 billion and then uh a quaint little movie that none of you have ever seen called uh (laughs) infinity war came and made like 3.1 billion or something stupid like that well yeah and end game did yeah that's right end game did uh infinity war what did it make like two six or something it was like right it's like right behind there yeah yeah it's pretty close imagine making three billion dollars on a movie dude i mean they've been building up to it for a while so like a lot of people saw it coming like uh, that it was going to break the record, but yeah. yeah, that is an achievement right there. Like, um, ah, dude, cl- like three billion dollars on one movie. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Absolutely absurd. Um, the last movie here is again because it just of its impact on culture, and it was yeah. kind of like a where were you when this came out movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's Get Out which came out in mm. 2017. Love it, um, This movie is like... I enjoy it, but it's super uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it is, yeah. There's like no crazy... Um, I don't know, like techniques or anything. I think if, if you were to say there's something that just kind of was like never done before, it was Jordan Peele's writing style. Oh, yeah. his His screenplay is so good. Yeah, they're so, like, all of his movies, uh, Get Out and Us, um, the screenplays are very tight. Um, they have a central theme, and it is broadcast throughout the entire film. Um, yeah. Like, you you kind of know, like, a Jordan Peele movie is its own beast. Like, you know mm-hmm. when you're going to see a Jordan Peele movie, there's going to be uh, racial themes and uh, cultural commentary throughout the whole thing. Um, yeah. it's going to be the, you know, the state of African American lives in the United States and, and mm-hmm. how they're juxtaposed with, you know, white lives and things like that. And the quality of life for those two people groups and, you know, how they coexist with one another, um, yeah. huge theme thematically, you know, it's, it's like. Uh, it's like the direct opposite of like a KKK propaganda film. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just so, um, I mean, it, it really was like everybody went and saw it. I, I don't even yeah. know how to like, everybody saw that movie. Um, I remember uh, we were in college when it came out and you know, I didn't see it for a while because I just was like, I don't know. Like, it just seemed like really weird to me. 
mm-hmm. and I I didn't know if that weirdness would translate to it being good. Yeah. Um, but it just was so timely in the culture that we live in today. Yeah. Um, and kind of like what it was saying about race relations in the world that we live in. And um, it kind of was, and it's interesting for the period that we're in now where, you know, race relations are at an all time uh, front burner issue um, to have a movie that came out in 17 that, you know, at the time, I mean, it was a a front burner issue, but nothing like it is now. And when Mm -hmm. that movie came out, it started all new dialogue about, you know, what it was like to live in the 2015s, 2010s in America as a black person. Mm -hmm. And it kind of like brought up all the stereotypes about, you know, the respective cultures that are represented. And it just had like a extremely timely commentary on like social uh, prejudice and different things like that. Yeah, totally. It used filmmaking as a vessel to speak its truth and to present a message that, you know, isn't necessarily like aside from a Spike Lee movie wasn't really being presented by other filmmakers. Yeah, um, especially not in this way, you know, like uh, Get Out is um, it's almost like a. It's it's presented almost as like a low fantasy sort of thing. Almost, yeah. yeah. Almost there. Like um as far as like themes go, I think. Right. Like um like like um of course like settings and things like that feel are are definitely real. Um but you're right. I think like the the filmmaking in Get Out is is it's pretty, you know, it's pretty simple film. Mm-hmm. Um but the screenplay is just so genius man like the right like it, it just draws you in and it uses that kind of like low fantasy element to mm-hmm. tell a really heavy thematic um compelling and convicting story right um through that medium of you know um not necessarily like a escapist cinema because it's not that. <laughs> yeah. But um but you, through the lens of cinema which which can be, you know, um altered to to make um you know s- stories more more interesting and easier to digest, right? Yeah. Um and of course get out gets extremely hard to digest towards the end. Um, yeah. because it just it goes crazy. Um and it hammers down on its main themes and its ideas and really pulls through like it, it's one of those movies that you you watch and you're disturbed um mm-hmm. but you're also like oh my how did he he just made like he just wrote the perfect screenplay you right know? like they're they're like i i could never imagine like it, it i think it ranks in the top screenplays for me like it, it's one of those that just everything pays off. Like all of the characters are so well done. The yeah. themes are perfect. Like um, it kind of feels in terms of screenplay, a lot like usual suspects for me yeah. um, where it's like the story is so incredibly tight. It's the kind of thing where it doesn't matter who wrote it. It would yeah. get made. And yeah. Jordan Peele already had 
you know, from Key and Peele, like he <laughs> had uh, like a reputation and, and yeah. he had connections. And so he was able to get this thing made fairly independently. But yeah. it would like I could have t- taken that to uh, 21st Century Fox and they would have made it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like it is such a well written story and it kind of like follows a little bit of a mystery arc because um, it's just mm-hmm. like you're unraveling more and more and more about this, you know, this new place that we're in as yeah. an audience. And yeah, it's almost like first person limited. Right. Yeah. And it, it really does kind of like, like that twist in there, like in that last third of the movie, oh, like you so see good. it coming, you know, yeah. it's coming, but it's still like, oh God, <laughs> like, yep. I can't believe they've done that to me. Um, it's, it's like, it's disturbing. Um, it achieves all of its themes and it dials it up to 12 so that you really hear the message. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a cultural landmark, unlike any other cultural landmark, because it really is, it's like if Spike Lee could make a movie that would do everything he wanted it to, but he would make it better than how he makes them, he would make Get Out. (laughs) <laughs> it sounds like you're hating on Spike Lee a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Jordan Peele is a better version of Spike Lee personally. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I think they do a lot of similar things. I think they comment on African-American culture very uniquely. Yeah. Spike and Lee is just a little bit more explicit. For sure. Yeah, and he's just like very overt. And Jordan Peele is too, but I think... Jordan Peele's views are heavily layered in story technique, plot devices, and theme, whereas yeah. uh, Spike Lee just will straight up have his character tell you, and yeah, and that that's probably just a pet peeve of mine. Like I hate um, like overt uh, objective views just spouted mm. off by in your char- in your by your character's dialogue. Like I would just rather be able to, um, like with Jordan Peele, watch a movie. And fully understand and take away the meaning of it rather than it just being like force fed down my throat. Yeah. And yeah, I think I, Jordan Peele does that really well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think that has been our pretty exhaustive list of uh, films that have impacted cinema and culture. Um, and yeah, that's this just is, American cinema. I know this is not even like we could do a whole nother one of these on European cinema. Um, you could get me talking me. for a while on uh, Andre Tarkovsky if you wanted to. Oh my <laughs> word, dude! When you were talking, when we were talking at the very beginning um, about uh, Gone with the Wind, I was thinking about Tarkovsky. Or, uh, Tarkovsky. Yeah, like I was thinking about some of his landscapes, and I was like, oh mm-hmm. man, yep, that's yeah, Tarkovsky. Um, Dude, you know a film that I think is going to be on this list uh, soon is Parasite. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah, that movie is kind of like... I think it is a little bit like a a Peel movie in that it's the screenplay is extremely tight. The themes are very um, heavily layered. And the film language is extremely fluent and steeped in a lot of other movies. Mm, um, yeah. I just bought Parasite the other day. I'm about to watch oh, nice. it again for like the second or third time here soon. Dude. Um, I love that. I do. Yeah. 
I think you're right. I I do think that it's it's got like all the the makings of a movie like that because it's a movie from South Korea, which you know naturally a film like that shouldn't be able to make a ton of money just mm-hmm. because the American market is so large and that is where all the money yeah. is made and yeah. it's essentially like an indie project because it's just not made in America. Yeah. And um you know it made something like 500 million dollars or 600 million dollars or something like that. Mm. And it won a bunch of awards. Um yeah, it's got that cultural significance, film significance. It'll be on there soon. I don't know yeah. where it ranks in terms of like the hundred best movies ever, but you got to think it's like top thirty, right? Yeah. Well, the folks on uh, Letterboxd seems seem to think it's the uh, number one movie. I don't know, man. <laughs> I, feel I don't like... think it's the number one movie ever, but it's definitely up there. It's good. It's really. It good. is. It is. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I'm glad you yeah. could come on Rising Action. We'll have to have you on here again soon. Dude, where can everybody? Where can everybody find you? Where can they see what you're up to and what you're doing? Oh my word, dude! I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really. Uh, Letterbox is like the only social media that I really use all that much. Yeah. Um, and on there, I don't even know what my name is. Uh, hang on, it's probably just Seth Williams or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you. You can find my YouTube channel. Um, it's called Fiddlehead Media House. I post on there every once in a while, but not very often. So good luck with that. Yeah, um, there's a lot of short films. A lot of stuff we worked on in college is on there. Yeah, a lot of stuff that Josh and I did together is on there. Um, but yeah, um, I'm, I'm not a huge social media guy. So <laughs> You can follow you can me on find Facebook me there. if you want to. Yeah, I mean... I don't even look at Facebook that often anymore. <laughs> yeah, so um, follow him on uh, on YouTube at uh, Fiddlehead Media House. You can go back into the archives and find a whole bunch of fun things that uh, that he and I did, I guess not even that long ago, but um, like you just sent me the other day um, some remastered edits of a couple of things we did like a year and a half ago. Yeah, And it just kind of like brought this whole wave of nostalgia, like, man, I need to go back and make a short film or something. Totally. Yeah. I'm up for it. I'm down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast and, uh, and, and this is it for, for cinema. Yeah, man. It was awesome. Thank you.